How do you plan for fantasy baseball in general and for your leagues in particular? I'll ask Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 1st. It's show number one of the 2019 fantasy baseball season. It's great to be back and great to have you with us. I'm Patrick Davich, your host. It's another great Friday full edition. We'll have our feature interview with Ray Murphy, discussing his early experts drafts, Baseball HQ tools and updates, and his boons and banes for 2019. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Robinson Cano, David Robertson, Josh Donaldson, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at new homes for Cody Allen, as Drubal Cabrera, Avisail Garcia, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Tampa first baseman Nate Lowe. And in our new Market Watch segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at the DH and catcher markets. And finally in Master Notes, I'll be talking about my New Year's fantasy resolutions. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Lots of player movement, lots of early drafts to talk about. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio, our first feature guest of the year. Funny, I've never thought of myself as a leadoff hitter, but I'll do whatever you want, Petey. Obviously, we're look, looking to you for big production this year. Uh, how many leagues are you going to play in? Uh, this is going to help my arbitration case. That's great. Uh, but as far as leagues, let's see. Uh, I've done a couple of, or I've, I've done one draft and hold league already. I've got another one going on now. Uh, I sort of don't count those. I really think of those as research or draft prep activities for the sort of, you know, bigger drafts in February and March. Uh, I'm going to do Tout Wars Mixed League. I'm going to do an NFBC main event. Uh, and I'll probably add another uh, NFBC draft there, a 12-teamer in one format or another. So those will be th- – and TGFBI, which I know you're doing too. So I guess that's four right. – Four mixed league drafts I'll have, and I'll play in a couple of score sheet leagues that are basically my home leagues. That's uh, that'll be that should be the portfolio this year. Ray, I know a lot of us face the choice of many, many leagues that we have the opportunity to play in. How do you balance the the leagues that you choose? You know, one thing there's a couple of different aspects to it. Like I said, the sort of draft and hold leagues, I almost don't count because. The investment, <coughs> excuse me, the investment in season is not significant. You know, there's no free agency, no trades, so they're really just uh, you know a preseason fun activity. And like I said, I get the research benefit from them of studying the player pool, etc. Um, I try not to have more than one or at most two slow drafts going on at the same time throughout the preseason, so that kind of limits me. Uh, you know, there's sort of a you know not single threadedness, but double threadedness, if you will, to what my capacity is in the preseason. And most of all, I'm trying to manage 
what the in-season commitment is because you know you're I'm, at least for me my eyes can get way bigger than my uh, my stomach in the preseason and I'll be like oh I'll do another draft or I'd love to get into another league but then you get into uh, you know, especially with the preponderance of you know, weekend transaction deadlines, especially Sundays, you know, I'm not in a position where I can spend you know 14 hours on Sunday going through fab for all of my leagues. So um, family obligations and such preclude that. So I'm trying to keep my uh, you know June, July, August weekends uh, at a manageable manageable scope of work, and that's really what governs my uh, my choices at this time of year. Yeah, I feel the same way, and one of the things, uh, I actually expanded my portfolio, I'll be talking about that a little later on in Master Notes this year, moved up from one league to three, and a, a big component of it is you have to try to figure out when are these leagues making their moves. So I, I don't want to be in a situation where I've got a Sunday 11 a.m. deadline and a Sunday 11 p.m. deadline, because things can happen in those 12 hours, and it sort of obliges you to look at uh, look at the league twice, and I'd rather do it kind of all at once, so you can do use a spreadsheet pretty quickly and make some decisions. But uh, is it a question for you of choosing which league to play in or which not to play in? You know, it's interesting. I actually gave up a league this year, and I don't think I've done that in quite some time. Um, I gave up uh, the Labor Mixed League that I've been in since that league's inception, maybe, I don't know, six or seven years ago at this point. I passed it on to our friend Ryan Bloomfield to represent Baseball HQ this year. And that was a combination of, you know, some of the factors we just talked about and wanting to manage my portfolio a little bit better. And honestly, frankly, you know, Ryan had earned that kind of an opportunity, and I wanted to pass that on to him. Uh, that was one league in particular that, you know, for some reason I felt like hadn't really resonated with me for the last couple of years or I hadn't done as, done as well in it. So maybe there's a chicken or egg problem there, but I didn't feel like I was really grinding to my, you know, my, my fullest ability there in the last couple of years. So I felt like um, maybe passing that on to somebody else for a fresh set of eyes and letting me, you know, rechannel some energies might, have, might, might be a good thing to do. It also gives me an opportunity to, you know, watch Ryan play that league, and I know that league pretty well, and I'll probably write some columns about, you know, I might, I might shadow draft Ryan in that draft or something like that and, you know, try to get a, uh, you know, kind of like the, um, you know, the athlete who gets, uh, you know, basketball player or the football player who gets benched and then gets to sit down and just sort of watch the game a little bit from a, you know, courtside seat instead of uh, from on the field and see if they get a different perspective from it. I'm, I'm thinking along those lines. Well, one league you didn't mention, Ray, is the uh, Fantasy Sports Trade Association winter meeting. Uh, you guys have a draft. You and your co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com, Brent Hershey, draft together. And before we talk about the players and the planning, how do you guys organize the partnership? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, funny that the draft that's ongoing right now still is one I didn't mention in my portfolio. Uh, it goes to show you where my brain is today. But anyway, yeah, I, you know... I, I partner pretty well with people. I, as we've talked about before, I have a partner in my NFPC league that I've played with for a number of years, and Brent and I have partnered on these leagues before. Um, there, I, I often say that there aren't you know five people on earth I could actually successfully partner with, but luckily I've identified you know two or three of them. So that, and and Brent is one of those guys. We obviously you know work super closely together and you know collaborate on producing the forecaster each year and are reviewing player projections and commentaries. You know. 12 months a year reviewing our analysis on the site and that sort of thing. We're, you know, we're not quite a hive brain at this point, but we're pretty close to it. So, uh, you know, in terms of 
a partnership at the draft table. That's a, uh, you know, given the state of our relationship at this point, that's, that's a relatively minor undertaking. But in this particular instance, uh, you, you weren't actually at the draft table. You had commitments, and so uh, Brent did the drafting kind of with an, a, a bit of advice from you in the, in the, in the run-up to it. You guys, of course, did your research and stuff like that. And then uh, you set to, um, to Brent a advice memo or a draft planning memo that you also simultaneously published at BaseballHQ.com. And I, I thought that whole thing was pretty interesting. But uh, before we start with that, I'd like to ask you about the emphasis that all of us experts have on talking about the first rounds, the early rounds, and maybe we don't spend enough time thinking about the later rounds and maybe that transfers down to owners who are looking to us for expertise and advice. What's your take on the importance of those early rounds and understanding what you're going to do, which actually seems like it's fairly cut and dried in the first round, depending on where you pick. There's a relatively limited number of choices, but as you get to round 21 or, or 17, now there's lots of choices, lots of balancing, or is that impossible to analyze because there's so many choices? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know, I think some of what you just said at the end there is a contributing factor. I can't sit there before a draft with you know a great deal of accuracy and say, I want this guy in round 20 the way I could say I'm targeting this guy in round one or two or three. Uh, but to me, the focus on the first few rounds and coming up with a draft plan there, you know, it has two purposes. And to me, neither of the primary purposes are about the, you know, the, the three names you come up with or, you know, the five names you come up with for the first few rounds, however many rounds you're trying to sort of script out. Um, and to your point, I, I think a lot of it is about trying to, trying to position yourself to give you a plan or put, put you in a position to execute a plan for those later rounds. It's not as it's not completely about which three names you get, although those are entirely important names and you know they're three cornerstones of your team in the first three rounds and you don't want to you know you're certainly trying to avoid landmines there and if there's someone that we're shying away from, we're not going to take him if we don't like him just because he has the right profile or his projection has the right element that we think we needed that spot. We're really trying to build a foundation that allows us to, you know, to, to then pivot and execute a plan the rest of the draft based on that foundation and try to sort of steer into the fat part of the player pool, if you will. For instance, one of the things about this plan that I really liked from Brent's perspective was just knowing I was going to be chirping in his ear throughout the draft and he's sitting in a, you know, big draft table that's live on Sirius XM and, you know, a couple of times during the draft, it always happens that you're being interviewed on the air when your pick is, you know, two picks away and you're not getting, and you lose the window to do a little bit of research. It's kind of a chaotic environment. So one of the things I was trying to do for Brent was to um, sort of streamline his options there. And what we did in those first couple of rounds really set him up to be, you know, not singularly focused, but to narrow his focus on you know, a, a, um, a particular segment of the player pool for the rest of the draft, which I thought really was trying to sort of make life easier for him, as well as I thought it made sense from a tactical point of view. But there was some logistics involved as well. I was going to ask you about that. You said in the, uh, in the uh, BaseballHQ.com article about your advice and planning that uh, I mentioned earlier, 
you were using Slack, the online collaboration tool to communicate with Brent. I was wondering how well that's worked because in the past I tried to do it with a partner and we were using Facebook Messenger and it was so slow and the latency was so bad that by the time, especially in an auction situation that was, so I was like typing bid, 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 and, and 12 seconds later he gets the message and the player's over. So how'd the Slack work? You know, it worked pretty well. I'm not sure... Um I'm not sure we really got ourselves in a jam where we needed completely instant communication. You know, we we didn't get. Uh, I think there was one point in the ten rounds that we're actually in the at the conference there in the the two hour live portion of the draft. There might have been one pick out of the ten where we got sniped a pick or two before with a guy we won and had it to and had to pivot. And I think in that case, Brett even did it on his own. I'm not even sure I responded in time to be helpful. But, um, you know, I had the draft board open on my computer, too. They were updating that live online. So, you know, Brent wasn't in a position where he had to be typing in every pick and relaying it to me. I was at least seeing the picks in, you know, pretty close to real time with what he was seeing in the draft room. So I at least had that going for me. And we had, you know, we were working for the most part, you know, half a round or a round ahead with, you know, talking through options and then watching them fall off the board and get, get our working list pared down to one or two where a choice had to be made. It wasn't a, um, we, we didn't get caught with our pants down at any point. And if we did, we might've slight, we might've strained the, you know, near real time communication we were relying on. So in the one instance, you said you're not even sure if, uh, if uh, Brent was looking uh, at the Slack to see what you were doing. Was that because of a latency problem with Slack itself when you got sniped a pick before and you all of a sudden had to make a real fast decision or Brent had to make a relatively quick decision? Was it a technical issue or was it just a heat of the moment kind of thing? I think it was just a heat of the moment. I think, I'm, you know, I wasn't in the room, so I don't know what the latency was, but it seemed like... Uh, when we got sniped, you know, I was typing something into Brent. And after I saw we got sniped, I said, oh, okay, well, we should just go do this. And then the draft board refreshed before I heard back from Brent, and Brent had done something different, which was fine. It was, you know, it wasn't completely out of left field or anything. It was a perfectly reasonable decision, but I did not, um, you know, whatever suggestion I had, Brent either conveniently ignored it or just made a decision before I typed it. I finished typing it in in time. And, you know, in this day and age, unless someone's, you know, literally sitting there, sitting right next to you, you're prone to stuff like that happening. Yeah, I guess the other alternative would be if you had a fairly secure cell connection, you could, uh, you know, don a headset and, and be in, be literally in speech communication over the two hours. But, uh, you know, I, I don't recall ever seeing a cell phone system that could last two hours without some kind of technical glitch, call dropping, battery dying. There's always something going wrong. Uh, in your... Uh, memo that you sent to to Brent and that you published online at baseballhq.com. You mentioned that you started at pick five in the uh, snake draft, and you said that was because of a fairly late selection in the Kentucky Derby draw. Where would you rather have drafted? What's your theory on uh, where you want to draft this year? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm I, I'm I'm still evolving my answer to that question. When I wrote that article, you know, I you know, as I outlined to Brent in the letter, you know, I came up with or 10 very reasonable options for us at pick number five. And that's not to say, you know, I would have taken any of the 10, but I, you know, we could talk later on about, you know, who the one or two that were a little riskier or a little less desirable might've been. But, you know, I had, I had clearly more than five options there. And the most efficient thing to do in that spot would have been to fall to pick eight or pick nine and get whichever one of those, 
that I judged in that top tier fell to me and then get a slightly better second round pick on the way back. Uh, that was what my thinking was when I wrote that, and I thought five was a little inefficient from that point of view. But it's interesting because I'm doing a slow draft right now with a bunch of um, industry guys um, who were all at first pitch Arizona and who organized a, uh, a slow draft, and I'm picking seventh there. And I'm really not enjoying the experience of the seventh slot. You know, with the way you know, obviously it's a different draft. It's not the exact same people, but. Um, what I'm getting in the second, third, fourth, fifth round of pick seven, I always feel like I'm a little out of step with what's available versus what I was hoping to get there. Whereas in this draft at the FSTA conference, everything broke exactly as we wanted it to. So whether that was just a case of having a, having a better plan at the FSTA draft or just the random luck of the draw, I don't know. But I I might have told you when I wrote that article two or three weeks ago that number seven or eight would have been more desirable to me than the number five, but at least in a sample size of one, I'm not enjoying drafting from the seventh spot. So I don't know anymore. Do you think the uh, the best choice of draft slot varies from year to year a lot or a little or not at all? I think it depends what you're trying to accomplish there. Um, <coughs> you know, I, I read something the other day, one of the uh, industry folks or one of the um, first pitch Arizona speakers or one of my NFBC competitors or somebody said something that they use the draft slot to try to back into the starting pitching run and try to fall their first, they're worried less about their first round pick and worried more about getting a starting pitcher or a starting pitcher tier that they want in rounds two or three. And they don't want to be caught at you know, the wrong, wrong end of the snake for where their preferred couple of starting pitchers are. And that's a pretty good answer to the question, but that's going to, to your, back to your question, that kind of logic will vary quite a bit year to year, I think. So if you're thinking in those kind of terms, then what your best draft slot is is going to change. If <clears throat> if you're just thinking about it from a either you prefer drafting on the ends from a clustering your picks perspective or you prefer to be in the middle because you don't like to miss runs – Basically, there's a lot of considerations of where you pick your draft slot. And does the order of the players or where there's a cliff in the player pool change all that much? There aren't giant cliffs in rounds one, rounds two, round two, round three. You know, sometimes there are little positional clusters. But yeah, that kind of stuff does not change a lot year to year if you're really focused on it from a player pool perspective. If you've got other strategic considerations or roster building considerations, I think those can change a lot year to year. I've noticed that over the last few years, and I'm not the only one that's noticed this, it's been widely written about, including at BaseballHQ.com, and that is the increasing willingness of players to draft starting pitching way higher than used to be the case. You know, that those pitcher runs, even the, you know, Corey Klubers and Max Scherzers and in the day Clayton Kershaw's, well, Kershaw might have been the exception, but typically those runs started late second, early third. Now you're going to see maybe three pitchers, starters go in the first round, a bunch more at the turn, your Aaron Nola's and guys like that are going a lot higher than they used to be. And I think that's an adjustment that everybody has to make, that the, there's just a greater willingness to take starting pitchers earlier than before, although I think that's settling in now. You know, it's very interesting you mentioned that because I actually tweeted about this earlier this week in this same um, draft that I'm in now that um, the Arizona conference speakers are doing through three rounds in a 15-team draft. <coughs> excuse me, 13 of the 15 teams had exactly one pitcher, starting pitcher. One guy, Eric Carabell from ESPN, opened with three hitters, and one guy opened with 
two starting pitchers in their, in their three picks. The one who had the two starting pitchers was our friend Ron Chandler, who would have told you even a few years ago that taking two starting pitchers in his first three picks was you know just anathema to him, but he was the one who did that. But it was a complete groupthink situation because the other 13 people, myself included, all got one starting pitcher somewhere in the first three rounds. So we all had two hitters and one pitcher. It was a remark- remarkable sort of groupthink exercise or a lack of divergent strategy exercise. You said in the memo that you thought the number five pick, although it wasn't where you would have chosen to be, was workable, you called it. And, and then you added that this year's player pool mandates an early focus on acquiring speed. I've seen that analysis before, but what's your take on that? The speed, we've talked about this for a number of years, and the trend kind of topped off last year or reached a new peak last year where you know the I, I think nobody stole 40 bases last year, right? And the overall number of stolen bases in the game is down, has been for a number of years. And I think really what happens is when you know, we saw what happened to D. Gordon last year where he changed teams, he changed positions, he completely forgot how to take a walk, he broke a toe and didn't run in the second half. You know, Billy Hamilton has sort of been exposed for the lack of hitter talent that he is and you know, really has become sort of a you know, is at risk of becoming a part-time speed specialist. You know, so the the guys who we counted on to sort of build our stolen base foundation have, you know, been, had some cracks exposed or had some, you know, some warts, um, you know, cut into their one-core skill. And I think really what happens is there are still pockets of speed available at various points all the way down to draft pool. But I think increasingly as you go down to draft pool, those the warts that come along with those guys become significant. Either they're one category guys who are hurting you in other categories or their their playing time is at risk or you know um you know, there's reason to think from age or health perspective they're not going to continue to run at the rate they have. So really, you know, from my point of view, it's important to lock up some speed early because you can then pivot and collect power after that. That's not a secret either that, you know, in this day and age of, you know, three true outcomes that there's power to be had everywhere. And, you know, to me, the scarcer asset is the speed. And if you can get, you know, some kind of foundation of the speed, it doesn't mean you have to get 100 stolen bases in your first three picks. But if you can get, you know, a couple of 25 to 30 stolen base guys as your first couple of hitters on your roster, it really gives you a lot more flexibility, not just in how you build your roster, but that you don't have to, hold your nose and pick Billy Hamilton or D Gordon or, you know, Jared Dyson or whoever later on. And you know, because you're desperate for the speed and don't care about the warts that come with those guys. You're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at baseballhq.com. And Ray, in your advice memo to Brent, you mentioned you might have, a shot at Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez, Christian Yelich, or Trey Turner, that little bit of sort of a power-speed combo that you're interested in having. And uh, I followed the draft, and I saw that uh, Jose Ramirez and Lindor went right before you. You got double-sniped at three and four. Then you mentioned Ronald Acuna as a possible choice for number five as well. And I thought when I saw that, that's quite a leap of faith for a second-year guy. And it enters into that whole question of, is the risk too high for a guy in the first round to be a second-year a second year player, hearkening back to what Ron Chandler and all of us used to think about starting pitchers in the early rounds. What were you thinking when you thought about uh, a guy like Acuna, a second-year guy, in a pool with other more established players? Yeah, I was very much of a mind that, you know, I, w- I was trying to weigh the 
argument that you were just making. And on the one hand, he sort of did everything right last year, including you know growing quite a bit in the second half. And his 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 first season was just about everything you could ask for. But then again, as you say, it's a track record of one year. <clears throat> There's a lot of risk that goes with that. And if you're trying to minimize risk and uncertainty in your first round pick, you know that is sort of that lack of a track record of is, is sort of a big category of risk that you can't ignore. Now, a lot of people are making this choice. He's um, his his ADP is right there in the middle of the first round. It's not like I was putting him on a tier that the market hadn't already put him in. But yeah, I ended up shying away from him for that reason. I think if we had not taken Scherzer, we probably would have taken Trey Turner. Um, who you know is a slightly different profile than Acuna, but does at least have um, more of a track record behind him. I looked at Acuna's uh, Baseball HQ current pr- projection: thirty homers, twenty stolen bases. Not a bad start, but again, there's that risk associated with it. The I guess what we now say because we're trying to adopt the vernacular of uh, metrics and, and advanced analysis, big error bars on a guy like Acuna and maybe a little less so for a guy like Trey Turner. I think that's a pretty good way of summarizing it. I mean, Turner comes with his own risks in terms of you know, injury and uh, you know, s- s- some things like that, but the, uh, the lack of a track record is one that, you know, it, as, as you correctly put it, like just leads to larger error bars than I'm comfortable with in round one. Well, as you mentioned, you went with Max Scherzer in the five spot after those first four hitters, Trout, Betts, Ramirez, and uh, and Francisco Lindor. And uh, Max Scherzer's an interesting, it's a defensible pick, certainly. Lots of people writing about how high to take Max Scherzer. I've seen him as high as top three. And you mentioned to Brent that Scherzer is the last of the ace-level workhorses. And I think that's an important fact. Explain what you mean by that and why it's so valuable. So to me, the thing about Scherzer that's interesting, and I, I think this actually came up out at uh, First Pitch Arizona. We may have talked about it there. But you know, in this day and age of managing pitcher workloads, um, you know, Scherzer is, you know, I think, really the only guy you can reasonably project for 220 innings. And you know, with, even with other guys in you know the top starting pitcher tier, um, you know, Sales got some questions coming into this season based on the way he ended last year, and the Red Sox are clearly going to at least want to monitor his workload again. Corey Kluber is getting a little older and has a habit of you know been wearing down for the Indians late in the year and in the postseason, so they're likely to want to manage him as well. So, with the possible exception of Degrom, Scherzer is really the only two hundred and twenty inning projection, and as a result, the only. 270, 280-ish K projection that you get in the player pool. And as a result, compared to even the other people who are taking pitchers in rounds two and round three who are going to throw 180, 190 innings, you're getting uh, you know just a volume um, bonus with Scherzer, if you, assuming he stays healthy, of you know 15% or 20% on just innings and strikeouts and of course you know opportunity for wins that come with that so you're almost buying you know not quite you know one and a quarter starting pitchers but you know 1.15 or 1.2 starting pitchers with that pick relative to the rest of the market which i think is a um, is is a pretty big checkmark in Scherzer's fa- favor yeah i was thinking about it myself the other day and i thought you know the the gap between the top pitchers, which I think are Scherzer and DeGrom, and the next tier of them is actually quite a bit wider than most of the first round hitters and the guys below them. I think that the 
there's more advantage, relatively speaking, with those pitchers than there is with those hitters. Because really, when you look, I'm looking at the draft grid, and you've got Christian Yelich sort of partway down uh, towards the latter half of round one. You've got Alex Bregman kind of on the comeback to that same team. But really, these guys are pretty much interchangeable, you know. I mean, it, a lot of it just depends on what you're looking for, uh, power versus speed, and those kind of things. And when you look all around the uh, all around the draft uh, in the first three rounds, and you look at these guys, you think, man, you could really swap a lot of these guys willy nilly, and and it wouldn't really matter that much. I mean, I in the I know that when you look at it at a detailed level, that's probably not true. But at a glance, is there really that much difference between Alex Bregman and Christian Yelich? Not as much as there is between Max Scherzer and Corey Kluber, I don't think. I think that's right. You put it in the um, in the example of the team we drafted. You know, we drafted Scherzer. I talked about how if we were going to take a hitter there, it likely would have been Trey Turner. But we took Whit Merrifield in the second round, who you know is a to your point a pretty reasonable approximation of Trey Turner. Um, but if we had done it the other way around, if we took Turner first and took a pitcher in the second round, maybe I don't know. Um, I mean, it could have even been Kluber there. Then you've got, I think you've got that, you know, 15% less starting pitcher, and Turner isn't 15% better than Merrifield, according to our projections. So I, I, I think that backs up what you're saying in one particular example. From your memo, I uh, I knew that you would be ta- targeting a speed guy of some kind in the second round, and and then the challenge is, of course, you mentioned you don't want to get uh, even a even a decent player like Malik Smith is just it's just too high because of the lack of power. So you go from Merrifield, and then I think you might think you got a little lucky getting Starling Marte in the third round, coming back at, at pick five in the third round, because there's two guys who are five category players, and that's a that's a really good break for you guys. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Um, I was. We were we were pretty confident we would have our choice of Merrifield and Marte in uh, the second round there, and then uh, we were certainly happy to see the other one come back in the third round. And you know, I was trying to project whether that was actually going to work out, and because you know, I, I was reasonably confident of it, and the reason I was was because those first four teams that picked. Ahead of us in the first round, it took Trout, Betts, Lindor, Ramirez, like you said, all had their five-category hitter as well. So I thought there would be some other focuses or some other, you know, particularly on some pitching in that 2-3 turn for those teams that were picking between our second and third rounder. And sure enough, I think five of the eight picks in between our second and third rounder were starting pitchers because that was really where the run really took off. So... Yeah, we still had to sneak Marte through there, but it was a case where the people we were sneaking them, sneaking him through really just were chasing some other priorities at that point. Yeah, I thought the the one guy, uh, Jeff Erickson, picking first overall, and then he was picking first in round three, of course, went for Juan Soto of Washington, and a terrific player. And I think that that was the last real threat you had. Uh, Charlie Blackman went after him, so that's another guy with some stolen base upside. And that, that left you with starting Marte. And I can see, if, if we assume the next two guys would have taken starting pitchers either way, you might have ended up with Blackman, and I imagine you could have lived with that. Yeah, Blackman would have been an entirely reasonable proxy for Marte if we couldn't get him. Soto, you know, since he just doesn't run, you know, um, you know, certainly a very fine player, but was a little wasn't quite on our radar screen to the same to the same effect. So seeing him uh seeing him go there was okay. That's not to say Jeff made a mistake, but like I said, we were just you know sort of in different mindsets at that time. 
You called the closer market a horror show. I think I know what you meant by that, but explain what you meant by that. Yeah, so there's a couple of elements to that, and you know, I, I think you know, I wrote an article about this la- at the end of last year that the, you know, I think, and you and I have talked about this on this show, you know, for going on a number of years now. But it seems like the closer market is fracturing, and teams are now finally to un- finally understanding what we've said, you know, in our industry for so long is that the, you know, the anointed ninth inning closer isn't necessarily a. Uh, you know, unique skill set and, uh, you know, using relievers as firemen and using them in higher leverage situations and trying to use your freshest arm maybe a little more often and not using your closer blindly three and four days in a row when his velocity is down. All of these things are leading toward the save market being fractured even in season. And then you lay on top of it the fact that this draft is happening in mid-January and Craig Kimball's still a free agent and Cody Allen hadn't signed at the time this draft started. And sure, you know Craig Kimball's going to close, but because you don't know where he's going to close, you don't necessarily know if he should be bidding on Matt Barnes in Boston as if he's a closer or whether Arotis Vizcaino is really a closer in Atlanta or if Kimball's going to end up there and knock him down the pecking order. So when you take the unclose, and then you can add in the teams that aren't even trying to win. And at the time of this draft, I think it's gotten a little bit more clear with Hunter Strickland signing in Seattle, but you could have listed 10 pitchers in the Mariner bullpen at the time of this draft, and I couldn't have told you which one was going to get it more than five saves. So because of that, there were, you know, the number of quote-unquote stable closer situations that you could target in this draft was a lot lower than the 30 MLB team number. It was, you know, it might have been only half of that or a little bit more. So as a result, the, um, you know, the, the closer market was, you know, stifled. I thought you guys took an interesting decision on how to manage the closer situation, which was basically not to take one in those first 10 rounds. Uh, one of the so- so-called established closers who might have gone in the first 10 rounds, you just decided to eschew those guys all together and wait for the uh, 11th round forward because th- that was taking place on a slow draft basis. And that would give you more time, first of all, to see which way the pins were falling in the closer market in general, plus which way the, the uh, closers were going when the runs might start and and, uh, and have more time to pick that at, le- at your leisure. And you ended up, uh, I think you wanted Ken Giles of the Blue Jays. You got sniped a couple of picks ahead of you, and you got Jose LeClerc, which is pretty much the same thing. Yeah, exactly. He's pretty much the same thing. You and I have talked about uh, Ken Giles so many times that people on the, listening to this podcast will probably be happy that we don't have Ken Giles rostered and have to go, th- go down that rabbit hole again. But, uh, yeah, we were happy to get LeClerc there. <coughs> we came back, uh, you know, a bunch of rounds later with uh, – Sir Anthony Dominguez in the, you know, sort of par closer marketplace, trying to find a little, another chunk of saves there. And I'm sure in the remaining six or eight picks we have, whatever it is, we'll throw a couple of more darts at the wall there and try to find a, uh, you know, hopefully by opening day have a second, um, you know, anointed save source to go alongside LeClerc. Uh, we talked about, uh, Nick and I talked about Sir Anthony Dominguez and the David Robertson situation in Philadelphia. Baseball HQ has Robertson getting the lion's share of the saves, but as we discussed earlier, uh, the the team seems to think that uh, Robertson's going to play more of a high leverage role, which could mean that there's more saves than people think available for Sir Anthony Dominguez, assuming they follow through on that. Yeah, I you know, having watched the situation pretty closely with Gabe Kapler last year, you know, there, he was you know much criticized early in the season, but I, I really do think he was doing a couple of things. He was riding hot hands, and I also think he was perhaps more than anybody gave him credit for 
paying attention to what I mentioned earlier, talking about um, you know the freshness of his relievers, and was really trying to manage their workloads and stay away from guys on back to back days. And if he's got comparable relievers and one pitched yesterday and one hasn't, he would go to the other one, you know, looking for the uh, you know to, to benefit for the freshness factor and trying to play the play the long game all season long. So with Robertson, with Sir Anthony Dominguez, and even with Hector Neris, who uh, you know, started out as the closer last year, lost the job, and then came back after a triple-A exile and was very, very good down the stretch. He's got a uh, number of options there. And I, I assume that this uh, – I, I would take the under on anybody in this bullpen getting, you know, 25, 28 saves. I think you'll probably see them spread around. Another horror show all fantasy owners are trying to get our heads around is catchers. Of course, very few make any kind of positive offensive contribution, and in most leagues, we still need two. How did you and Brent game out this uh, part of the of the draft? We were really trying to do no harm in that area. Uh, you know, as frustrating as the two catcher experience can be, and I sort of came around last year to the idea that you know maybe a two catcher needs to go uh, needs to go away, and we just you know steer it to the. Uh, Lousiness of the position and go to go to a go to one catcher formats even in mixed mixed leagues. Um, despite all of those things being true, the rule here is this is this league is a two catcher league, so we have to roster two catchers. And really, all we were trying to do was get one that was not going to be you know from that horror show tier. One guy who at least would you know be respectable, and then that way, even if we have to you know churn the second spot all year in the waiver wire until we could find somebody we're comfortable with. That's okay if it comes to that, but we wanted to have one guy that we could sort of ink in and didn't want to be on the uh, catcher carousel for, for both roster spots because that can get kind of both exhausting and expensive in terms of fab. Not surprisingly, J.T. Real Muto goes first uh, among the catchers in round five. Gary Sanchez, surprisingly, to some in round six, giving the batting average risk. Then you kind of see them drift out here and there. Posey goes uh, round 10, Contreras in 11. And then uh, you guys come up in round 12, and that's where you took Yaddy or Molina, which is a perfectly respectable pick and kind of in the range of where your cheat sheet was. Uh, the guy that interests me that you took later on for your second catcher is uh, Mitch Garver, because uh, you could have had Mike Zanino, you could have had Omar Narvaez, you could have had Robinson Chirinos, and uh, instead you decided to go with uh, Mitch Garver. You could have had Jorge Alfaro, too, I think. Uh, why Garver over those seemingly more established, more sort of certain kind of guys? Um, you know, some of it was the profile. We were, Like I said, we were sort of in a do-no-harm mode. Zanino's batting average was something I didn't feel like we were in a position to really absorb there. We looked at a bunch of guys. We certainly, Chirinos was certainly on our list. We looked at both Washington guys, Suzuki and Jan Gomes. Uh, Jorge Alfaro went right in the neighborhood there as well, and he was uh, you know, sort of in the hopper for us. Um, but as you say, we ended up with Garver, and some of that was, you know, there's, a, there's some contact and batting average skill there that I think sets a reasonable floor. I think he might play more than some of those other guys. Like, obviously, the Washington guys sort of look like a true timeshare, whereas Garver... Seems like more of a 400 bat guy. So if he gets decent uh, batting average and you know playing time, some counting stats should flow out of that. So you know we're not head over heels about the Mitch Garver experience, but we're hopeful he'll keep us off that uh, waiver wire closer carousel. I guess. Yeah, when I th think of Mitch Garver, all, all I can remember is last year him making a bunch of sort of basic defensive blunders, and I wonder if you're worried at all about his defensive chops 
affecting uh, the situation in Minnesota because they are going to have some options this year. Yeah, they, you know that that is a uh, you know it's one of the hazards of drafting early. There's there's some uncertainty there. You got Jason Castro coming back from injury, who you know theoretically could steal some at bats there, and then there's uh, you know Twitter darling Williams Ask Astadio who. Who also, you know, could steal some at bats at catcher as well as some other positions. Um, and there's a new manager there, so you know the way the, those guys got used last year doesn't necessarily carry over. Rocco Beldelli may have some different ideas, so there's uh, there's some risk there, but there's some risk with all these second catchers. It's round 18, and if we got this one wrong, we have to throw away Garver at the end of April. We'll do it, but it seemed like a reasonable place to cast an initial bet. And what I thought when I saw the pick is this this looks like an upside pick to me because uh, he's he's ticketed for 50% of the playing time on the Baseball HQ team depth charts, uh, Castro at 40 uh, and Will Estudillo and uh, Chris Jimenez at 10 points each. I know that's 110, but it's early, and that's why they don't always add up to 100. But there's a possibility here that if Mitch Garver plays well, he could end up at 60% of the, of the plate appearances. But even at 50, the thing is he's not going to kill you. And anybody that you replace him with out of the free agent pool later on is probably not going to deliver much more in the way of home runs, much more in the way of counting stats, certainly not much more in the way of stolen bases. I thought when I saw Mitch Garver that your thinking might be, hey, even if we just have to let him sit on our on our roster and not contribute anything, that's better than having a guy on there who's adding three home runs and a 205 batting average. Yeah, that's right. And you know the uh, in some sense the Zunino types who you know hit 205 or Alfaro is another one who I mentioned who went right in that range that hits in that range that, that's that, that batting average drag especially over a larger at bat denominator really hurts so the uh, the part time 50 60 percent projection for Garver is not actually a deterrent. Right, and, and like I said, if he meets just that fifty percent expectation, that's the that's what the site has currently, and I think that's what most people would kind of guess. Uh, currently, you're looking at sort of mid fifties runs, mid fifties RBIs, nine or ten home runs, and a two sixty batting average. And I think that two sixty batting average is not to be overlooked, considering, as I said, the damage that a worse catcher can do in that department. Right, he's not Joey Votto, but the gap between. Him and you know Jorge Alfaro's two hundred five is you know about the same as the gap between you know it's you know it's the exact same as the gap between Jose Altuve and you know Brian Dozier or something in another position. You would absolutely you know give you know a big part of Altuve's value is you know the, the batting average cushion he gives you, and relative to the player pool, you know that pedestrian two sixty batting average from Garver is actually an asset. You're absolutely right. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And, Ray, how much of your fantasy planning is general in nature versus specific to the league or format? I think I do a lot of general, but um, I may not be the entire best person to ask because I end up playing these you know mixed mixed straight draft formats, not exclusively, but you know primarily. So I don't play in – to me, it would be awfully exhausting to play in uh, – you know, a couple of only leagues with 12 teams and, you know, ultra rosters and all of that, and then try to pivot to shallower mixed leagues. And then you know, I do play a bunch of score sheet, which is sort of a, another entity unto itself. But to me, you know, the brain cycles of trying to put your head into vastly different um, league configurations and rule sets are tough. Um, so I, I, I minimize that a little bit. And as a result, there there isn't a huge gap between my 
my general planning and my league-specific planning. BaseballHQ.com has a lot of tools for both of those activities, general planning and league-specific research. So how can owners minimize the times they have to reinvent the wheel by using the BaseballHQ.com tools? You know, we, we're, we're always sort of of a, of a mindset that, you know, the, the reader, the subscriber knows their own league universe better than we can. So we try to give the, uh, you know, in most cases, you know, with our tools, et cetera, we're trying to give, you know, the non-league textual, you know, player-based knowledge and then let you let the reader apply it to their own league or their own situation. We might say that, you know, we'll take Ronald Acuna. We might say that, you know, we're a little bearish on Acuna's outlook this year just because of the short track record. But if you've got him at a huge discount because you bought him at auction last year before he was called up, then, you know, you don't care if he's not quite going to reach what, you know, the ADP of a first rounder says because you're going to make money, you're going to make profit on him regardless. And if you're in a dynasty league, you care even less. So, you know, the league context, we, we generally leave to the reader, but then in the, uh, you know, in, the, in our gaming and strategy articles and things like that, we're, then we uh, can get a little more into some specific formats and have experts on those formats. Like um, Matt Beagle's been writing some articles lately about um, the Sim League rookie drafts this year and the context for that. So where we have writers with, you know, deep contextual knowledge in some of those formats, that's when we dive into those. I should mention, uh, of course, I've been with BaseballHQ.com a long time, and I, I really love pretty much all the tools. But for me, the uh, the league-specific one that really uh, turns the tables for me is the uh, custom draft guide because I can tailor not only the uh, format of the league but the categories of the league plus the weightings of the categories if I want, uh, the, the hitter-pitcher pit, split. Do I want to do top players like Stars and Scrubs versus – the uh, spread the risk and other other kind of uh, macro sort of settings. I love the custom draft guide. Yeah, that's a uh, it's sort of certainly the uh, one of the linchpin tools on the site for this time of year. And you know, it, it's such a you know we've had it for a while now, so sometimes it doesn't feel like a uh, a huge leap forward, but it, it still really is. We've you've come so far from the days where you know if you're a baseball HQ subscriber or a subscriber to any website and you're going to the draft with just their spreadsheet and the values on their spreadsheet and that's what you're working from now you know in that situation sort of everyone's singing from the same hymnal and you know now you can go to a draft where even if multiple people at the table are baseball hq subscribers if you changed any of those variables like you're talking about in the custom draft guide anything from the hitter pitcher split to how you want to weight the categories, you can walk in there and have three or four people in your league be from Baseball HQ, but they may be working from, you know, what are, what basically amount to entirely different valuation systems. It's because of the way you flip the switches and pulled the levers and the tools. And that's, uh, you know, the, the, that's very empowering for the reader. It's also, you know, there's also a little bit of peril there and you got to make sure you don't, you know, you don't set things up completely backwards. But, you know, short of that, um, it, it, it's a huge benefit. With great power comes great responsibility, I guess. Yeah, and, and I know that uh, this is a question that probably comes up a lot, but I'll ask it anyway. When you're using the tool to set the the uh, hitter-pitcher split, should you be using what you expect the league split to be or what you want your own split to be? I don't think there's one answer to that question. I mean, as you say, it does come up a lot. To me, it the, the way I answer that question when I get asked is it comes down to what you want to see in front of you at the draft table. If you're drafting and the player gets nominated 
and you want to look at your printout or your spreadsheet or however, whatever data you downloaded, do you want to see the number you think the market will pay? And you can react to that by deciding whether you're willing to jump in at a couple of bucks below or even a couple of bucks above if it's a player you really need or what have you. Or do you want to look at the sheet and see your max bid or your, you know, your, your own personal price point? And the, to me, the answer to that question determines whether you set that hitter pitcher split based on the market or based on your own budget. I have an idea that will create a lot of extra work for you, so listen up. <laughs> maybe the cdg the custom draft guide output should have two columns for value one of which is completely neutral value that is we're just using sgp standings gains points we're going to take your league parameters we're going to assume that everything is exactly neutral we're going to assume that the uh, hitting pitching split is 67 33 or whatever it normally is we're going to set every no there's going to be no star scrubs angle it's all going to be balanced and then beside it, you could have a second column for values saying, these are the values you've input. And so it might uh, give, the, uh, give the owner a chance to go, hey, what, you know, here's a, here's a gap. Here's a, here's a difference that I might be able to exploit. Yeah, you, you could do that. I think you're still running, to, you know, now you're just sort of deferring the question. If you're going to show two values, now the question sort of becomes, okay, now, great, which one are you going to sort by? <laughs> right, so which is the uh, right? Which is the ranking mechanism? But you're right, and I think you know, in anecdotally, my sense is that a lot of what what a lot of players do is do that, and they'll take the output from us one way or the you know for the market, as we say, and then they'll go and uh, you know do something manual to to put in bid limits or put in their own bid for a player for the players in another column based on any number of their own criteria, like whether they really like the player or whether they, um, you know, he particularly fits a plan or on their keeper list, he, you know, there's a particular hole that only this guy is one of only three, three guys that can fill and you're willing to pay even more for him. Those sorts of things. I think you'll, you'll find that a lot of players will, um, you know, take the market based um, prices and then add a, you know, add, add an extra element to it, whether, you, you know, whether it's a whole other price or a plus sign or a color code or a bolding or a highlighting or whatever. I, I, I think that's the level of detail you get down to. And that really gets, now you're really getting into, you know, how people process information and what they respond to at the draft table and, you know, systems that work for different people and methods of learning and all sorts of other heuristics. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and and I should point out that also the custom draft guide allows you to export an Excel uh, a comma separated file for Excel purposes, and uh, uh, and you can actually I think even just uh, express it as a as an Excel spreadsheet right by just by clicking on it, and uh, once you have that you can run it twice. And this is exactly what I do. And I'm just hoping somebody would <laughs> save me the trouble, frankly, but I, I, I output this. Yeah. I just output the CDG twice, once with neutral settings and once with, you know, more to what I think the, the market is going to be. And then I just cut the, uh, the one value column out and paste it in beside the other one in the, in make one spreadsheet that does have two values. I was just hoping that you guys would save me the trouble because <laughs> I'm lazy fundamentally. Uh, listen, Ray, speaking of the site, what's new this season at baseballhq.com? Yeah. So we got a few things in the hopper. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm, it's early enough in the season. I don't put, I don't want to, you know, put these in ink, but, um, there's a couple of things we're tinkering with that I'm 
excited about. Um, there's um, some research that Eric Foramonte did in the last year or two on deserved home runs that I'm hoping to get onto the site probably right around or after opening day so that we'll get a um, metric in season of um, you know home run pacing versus you know deserved home runs based on the uh, you know formula that Eric developed in some research a year or two ago I think that would be a nice metric for us to introduce on the site um, and we know that um, in terms of weekly planning uh, in the last year or maybe it was two years now we brought back our um, Sunday column focused on two start pitchers that um, Brian Rudd's run with nicely for the last few years to identify you know pitchers with favorable matchups in the coming week uh, with multiple starts and you know using our powerful uh, pitcher matchup score tool to to delve into those matchups for the multiple start guys and put them into uh, into tiers and it occurred to us late last season that you know the way the starting pitcher tool works with those starting pitcher ratings it works so well we've tested it a few times and the numbers hold up so well that we might be able to derive something for hitters from that so uh ryan bloomfield played with a concept late in the season last year to develop sort of a uh a hitter's weekly planner that you know kind of is the hitter inverse of the two-star pitcher metric where we might we'll be able to run some data that says hey the twins are facing four left-handed pitchers this week so stock up on Nelson Cruz or what, you know, what have you, or the, you know, the, in this day and age of the weird schedules too, teams with only five games become uh, targets to sit hitters and, you know, weekly or bi-weekly lineup changes. So we're going to try to come up with uh, I haven't designed it yet, but um, I've got some working offline concepts of some, uh, some tables and graphics that we'll be able to put together to give you a sort of dashboard of the week ahead, not just for pitchers, but for, um, for, for, for all, assets really um that we can run every weekend and hopefully give you info as you go into uh weekly pickups and transaction deadlines sounds like it would be valuable also for daily transactions uh because you could do start playing those matchups almost like a daily player uh, and i know the tool is uh, useful for that as well i'm glad you mentioned uh, eric floramonte uh i've been reading hq for years of course and one of my favorite aspects of this time of year at the site has been the research uh, articles with the fantasy focus that HQ publishes. Uh, uh, you mentioned Eric uh, having that research about deserved home runs. He also wrote one just earlier this year, I think in January it got published, about the persistence of skills. And I'm working on something similar about Lima pitcher thresholds and their persistence. But, Ray, what other research articles do you know that might already be in the pipeline? You know, there's a couple of themes that we gave those guys. You know, sometimes those articles come in. Uh, you know, Ed DeCaria, uh, who is one of our researchers and run, actually also runs the research department, um, he's got a, you know, he's got a near endless list of topics, and sometimes it, you know, sometimes those articles come in, and I see them, you know, waiting to be edited, and I'm surprised because, you know, either I didn't know that particular one was coming, or that you know it's a topic that's been in the parking lot for you know a couple of years now, and someone finally got to the bottom of it. So it's kind of always a treat to get an email notification that Eric or Ed or you with the research department or anybody else has uh, submitted a research article because you know I, I get to go see what you know what what goodies uh, have been unearthed, and sometimes it's a nice surprise. Uh, we did give them a particular charge, though. It's not always a surprise. Um, one of the things as we were editing the uh, sort of our encyclopedia of analytics are you know, sort of toolbox and, you know, collected list of a couple of decades worth of research into, you know, our first principles and all of that. We sort of gave 
those guys as a team a charge to say, you know, when this, you know, we write so much about how the game is changing and how our strategies and our games need to react to what's going on in the major leagues and how, and how things are changing there, that, you know, it's probably time to go through the encyclopedia with a fine tooth comb and, you know, take some first principles that we've relied on for a long time and revalidate them for this era. So I think you'll see, uh, you know, some of the articles that come through both before opening day and during the season are going to have that theme in mind to try to sort of, uh, you know, in some cases it'll be revalidating prior work and saying, yes, we still you know, believe this. Or in some cases we might be like, okay, no, we don't. Um, you know, we need to, you know, at least for in the, in the current era, we need to expunge this from our, uh, you know, our list of long held principles. So I, I think that's, uh, that that's maybe not as sexy as some of the uh, cool research Eric does with uh, deserved home runs or the persistence of skills, but I, I think it's also important, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that roll out too. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our player news reports from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, listen, on Super Bowl Sunday, you know, there's going to be three types of fans camped out in front of the TV. Some of the fans root for the teams, some of the fans cheer for the commercials. If you're in that second group, or both groups, then USA Today's ad meter is for you. While you're chowing down on those chicken wings with your best buds, grab your phone, go to admeter.usatoday.com, and rate the 2019 Super Bowl commercials on a scale from 1 to 10. It's a battle to the top that everyone can be a fan of. Admeter.usatoday.com And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our player news reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off it's the National League Report and Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. It's good to be here. Good good to start the season again. Nick, let's talk about some of the players who changed leagues over the offseason. There may be a few more to come, but we'll start in Arizona. I think they surprised a few observers, Nick, by signing former closer Greg Holland to a deal. He was closing in Colorado and, of course, before that in Kansas City. And it's not that Greg Holland isn't capable of closing, but Arizona manager Tori Lovello had been indicating that the closer role would be going to right-hander Archie Bradley, who's been waiting in a setup role for a while now. How should we be looking at this signing of Greg Holland? Yeah, kind of a kind of a surprise, obviously, at this point, because Archie Bradley looked like a uh, uh, a guy that could take over this year, but but maybe not all that surprising. Bradley has been useful in a um, in a setup role, useful in a high leverage kind of role. Uh, and, and so, uh, it's, and it was a, a, um, a fairly inexpensive signing for Arizona. So uh, probably someone worth taking a chance on. But if you look at Greg Holland's skills, you have to wonder at this point exactly what they're going to get. Going back to 2013, Holland had, uh, Holland was, was incredible. 47 saves, a 201 BPV, uh, a, uh, uh, an ERA of 1.21, a whip of 0.87. Absolutely amazing. But since then, it's been kind of slowly on a downhill slide. 182 BPV in 2014, a 63 BPV in 2015, uh, and then last year, uh, 2017 bounced back up to 108, and then last year, a 15 BPV. 
So he's been kind of all over the place. It all depends on his control. When his control is there, things work. When his control is not there, they don't work so well. And last year even was a kind of a, a, um, a Jekyll Hyde kind of performance if you go month by month. Uh, first two months of the year, a, a negative BPV, a 277 BPV in June. And then the final two months of the year pitched very, very well. Uh, 20, 24 appearances, 22 innings pitched, a, a 0.93 ERA in August, a 0.77 ERA in September. So finished out the year quite well. As we said, it all depends on his control and whether he can get the ball over the plate. Yeah, and he especially didn't get it over the plate uh, last year uh, on his first pitch. We, we look at that first pitch strike rate, and, and that's a pretty good harbinger of control and a lot of good things. And typically, uh, Greg Holland was up in the low 60s, the high 50s, and last year all the way down to a 50% first pitch strike rate. And that's very low, and it led to a very high uh, 6.2 walks per nine and a 1.5 command ratio, 1.5 strikeouts to walks. But, of course, there was an injury involved in that uh, season last year. But, of course, the injury risk then transfers forward to this year, and we have to be a little bit concerned in the back of our minds whether Greg Holland is fully healthy, can stay fully healthy, and, and those kind of issues. Right, absolutely. If I were an Archie Bradley owner in a keeper league, I'd not be dumping Archie Bradley right now. Uh, certainly Greg Holland is somebody to keep a close eye on in spring training to see how he does. But you're right, there is a, there's definitely an injury risk there. Uh, and as we said last year, his control has been all over the place. First pitch strike rate in June, 75. First pitch strike rate in September, 32. So uh, you're right about that as, a, as an indicator that uh, is, is not normalized at this point. One good thing in his favor, he maintained his uh, very low home run per nine, uh, home run per nine rate. Uh, 0.4 home runs per nine is around where he was in 2017. It jumped up to 1.1. Moved to Arizona, probably not a huge help in that regard. Although they do have the humidor, so I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll have more bullpen news now out of Philadelphia, where the Phils signed right-hander David Robertson, late of the White Sox and the Yankees. He was mostly in a setup role there as well. Matt Dodge covered the story for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. What is going to be the effect of Robertson joining a Phillies bullpen that, again, already seemed to have a closer in Sir Anthony Dominguez? Uh, And again, we have a situation where it's going to depend a lot on manager usage. Robertson is likely to be a late-inning weapon, but not necessarily the regular closer. Uh, Matt quoted a story by Philadelphia Inquirer Daily News beat writer Matt Breen, who said that Robertson will be the top right-handed option to get key outs in any of the late innings. So what that says is a very high leverage role, uh, but not necessarily a closer role. Uh, makes him sound even more relevant in saves and holds leagues than uh, in leagues that use strictly saves, for example. Yeah, I, I'm kind of used to the idea that Robertson has been a relief pitcher who has those really dependably excellent skills, but Matt had a cautionary note on that front as well. Yes, his first pitch strike rate declined in 2018, which puts some dents in his control and his command ratios, but he still posted a 183 opposition uh, batting average and uh, rang up his ninth consecutive season of over of 10.4 dom over 60-plus innings. So a lot of consistency there. He's pitching very well. He did all of that in Hitters Parks in Yankee Stadium and in Guaranteed Rate Field, and we don't have to sweat the move uh, to Citizen Bank Park in that regard. David Robertson was also mentioned in the BaseballHQ.com speculator column with this year's edition of the Upside Players from the 2019 Baseball Forecaster. And before we get to what columnist Ryan Bloomfield said about Robertson, Nick, I really like these upside-downside columns in the speculator. Yeah, I really do too. For one thing, they help to highlight uh, 
those, those players who have got upside and downside markings in them in, in the forecaster so you don't have to, to go through and, and read every single one looking for that. Uh, they find players who capsules comments include upside and downside potential. It's a terrific column. It's been a staple of our preseason content for several years now. So what does Ryan Bloomfield say about the upside of David Robertson? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about these speculator pieces based on the, on the forecaster is that they look at where situations might have changed since the forecaster was went to press. And the upside noted in the forecaster was 30 saves, but that was written before we knew where Robertson would land. Uh, opportunity contingent, up 30 saves. Uh, Ryan says a lot of what Mike Dodge noted, we can't expect Robertson to get a lot of saves. Uh, that's because Philadelphia manager Gabe Kapler, who is a forecaster reader, by the way, uh, hasn't been one to define strict bullpen roles. And as we noted, it sounds like the team may think of Robertson as a high leverage reliever rather than a strictly a closer. Uh, all that said, he's posted a 140-plus BPV in six of the last seven years, making him one of the game's most stable relief pitchers. He could get 30 saves. Uh, even if he doesn't, he'll post great ratios and should pick up some saves and holds. Yeah, I like this kind of situation as a potential buying opportunity because if the buying owners in your league think that Robertson is going to be in a low save role, they might devalue him to the point where they miss the value of all the other things that he does. Uh, if he's in a high leverage role, for instance, we can expect that he would pick up some vulture wins. We could expect that perhaps if he does well and Dominguez gets hurt or struggles, he could end up being the closer and getting some saves down the road, and uh, you would have paid a discounted price for those saves uh, if that if that turns out to be the case. Now, if we get through the spring training and it looks like um, David Robertson will be the, the closer, and I should note from Baseball HQ's team depth charts, our team analysts project Robertson to get about 60% of the available saves, so he'll be in the mid-20s, Dominguez 40% in the mid-teens, so there's a possibility that by the time spring training is over and draft season is in really full gear, that Robertson will appear to be the closer, which means the discount will disappear. Right, very definitely. So it's something to keep an eye on, but the other thing we have to remember, I think, too, is in spring training, uh, you may not really get a clue as to who the closer is. Uh, you'll see guys ending games, but not necessarily in safe situations. Well, let's stay in Philadelphia. They also made a big trade with the Seattle Mariners and the big ticket that came over, shortstop Jean Segura from Seattle. That was back in December. Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. What's the estimate for Segura once he's away from Seattle? Well, he said three straight 300-plus batting average seasons, although his, his expected batting average is about 30 points lower, so he's been over, overplaying that, uh, uh, and he doesn't get many walks. Uh, so he's really a pretty good bet for double-digit homers for 20-plus steals. Uh, Citizens Bank Park should give him a boost in power. Uh, Segura looks like he's locked in at short with Cesar Hernandez at second, uh, so Scott Kingery could be again be the odd man out. Uh, looks too like he'll probably bat second in the lineup. Uh, that might cut down on the steal somewhat. Uh, because uh, if you've got somebody on base ahead of him, it, it, he can't he can't steal second base. But the other thing, of course, is that it'll give him more RBI opportunities. And run scored opportunities anywhere near the top of the order. He could have a really good counting stat year. And I'm interested what you think, Nick, about this uh, batting average versus expected batting average difference. You mentioned that he's hit 300 for the last three years, and his expected batting average uh, by Baseball HQ's metric is about 270, 275, somewhere in there in each of those three years. 
But at a certain point, do we start looking at a player saying he's beating his XBA by 30 points year after year after year? He's doing something that the metric doesn't capture adequately, and maybe it's uh, one of those instances where he's doing something right. The math doesn't hasn't quite caught up with whatever it is that he's doing right. He can run really well, for instance, and we know that can boost uh, expected batting averages over what we expect. Could it be that this is a legitimate 300 hitter no matter what expected batting average says? Yeah, I think it definitely could be. And I think, you know, the, the fly in the ointment here is in the in the um, uh, the algorithm for calculating expected batting average. He doesn't walk much. So that looks like a low thing in terms of his batting average. But he's, he's with that speed, uh, it may not matter that he doesn't walk much. He makes good contact. He gets the ball on the ground. He can beat out things going to first base. Those are all the sorts of things that you see with the with the batting average continually topping that XBA uh, that you kind of say, okay, this is a guy who's uh, who's going to do this fairly consistently as long as his skills, other skills, remain solid. And I, I remember doing a, a baseball HQ research piece a few years ago where I looked at the relationship between walk rates and batting average and there really isn't one you know it's not a guaranteed thing that a good batting average hitter will have a high walk rate or or vice versa or the other way around that uh, a, a high walk rate sort of guarantees a decent batting average where walk rate really seemed to play was in power which because maybe because it indicated that the player was you know better able to square the ball up in a good hitting position but batting average is not really tied that closely to, to a walk rate anyway so again it could be that uh, to the extent that walk rate is a part of the calculation of expected batting average maybe it just shouldn't be and we have to take a guy like Segura and look at him and go you know he hits the ball hard he puts it on the ground a fair bit and uh, a guy who can run like that can beat out you know 10 12 hits a year and 10 12 hits a year is enough to raise you from 275 to 300 right very definitely i i think you're you're right on the money on the, on that analysis Former American League Most Valuable Player Josh Donaldson signed a one-year deal as a free agent with Atlanta. Jock Thompson covered this for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. What are we looking for from Josh Donaldson in Georgia? Well, it's an interesting bet for Atlanta and for Donaldson, or an interesting gamble, however you want to take a look at it. Both parties are hoping he can bounce back from a bunch of nagging back and calf injuries that really cut into his playing time in Toronto. He's 33 years old. He's missed 167 days over the last two seasons. Uh, that's basically a full season out of the past two, and only 187 at-bats in 2018. So the injuries have been a problem for Donaldson, but he still showed power and patience metrics that suggest a very strong upside if he can stay on the field, and that's going to be the, the biggest question. Uh, home runs uh, could decline, leaving Rogers Center and the other uh, home run friendly parks in the AL East and moving to SunTrust Park, which is less friendly to right-handed batters and other cavernous parks in the NL East. So we might see a decline in power. Nick, something I'm interested in Donaldson about is we talk about these injuries, uh, back injuries, notoriously difficult to deal with. Miguel Cabrera is another example of this, where once a guy seems to show that he's having those back issues, they just seem to nag and nag and nag, and they're really tough for baseball players to get over. And calf injuries, I read somewhere, Nick, recently, and I think it might have been in Joe Sheehan's baseball newsletter, but I'm not sure, but it noted that calf injuries for people like you and me, it's it's something you strain while you're out for your jog or you're out for your evening walk with your dog or whatever, and you know you rub it and maybe get a massage and, and you're good to go in a week. 
it's not like that for professional grade athletes. Calf injuries are really troublesome for professional athletes because of the strain they put on the muscle and with all the torque and power that they're generating with the lower half, swinging the bat and doing all the things that they do, sprinting and, and so forth. I think this uh, injury situation, I don't want to say it's I- insoluble, but what I do suggest to any owner who's considering Donaldson is don't think a calf injury is something to just push aside and say, ah, it's a calf injury, we all get them. Right, and I think the thing you've got with a guy like Donaldson and a guy like Cabrera, they're so valuable to their team when they're in the lineup and being productive that there frequently is a tendency for them when they get injured to rush them back more quickly. Uh, and that, of course, uh, exacerbates the possibility of a re-injury. So it's, it's, it's going to be a difficult situation, one that's going to have to be managed because this is a guy who's been, as we said, on the field for one year out of the past two because the injuries have kept, kept him consistently in and out of the lineup. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, sort of balance of forces, isn't it, Nick? Uh, on the one hand, the team wants to get this guy back on the field, especially a team like Atlanta. They have playoff aspirations, and they might look at their third base situation. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but th- they might think, boy, we sure would like to have Donaldson out there to add some pop to the middle of the lineup. And so there's this this force kind of urging the team to put him back on the field, and the player himself wants to get back out there as well. And on the flip side, the teams understand more and more about injuries, about the necessity of taking care, about easing guys back in and all these kind of things. And I wonder about that, what you think in the first place. And in the second place, Atlanta doesn't really have that second aspect because after this year, he's a free agent anyway. Right. Very definitely. I mean, uh, you know, this is the, this is one and done probably for Atlanta. So, uh, and they've got, as we'll talk about in, in a minute, they've got some up and coming possibilities at third base. So, Uh, You know, it's going to be a difficult situation for Atlanta to manage. And I think that's going to be the thing is how do they manage this asset they've hired for what I'm sure they expect to be a single year? Yeah, I think that's the question. All right. Now, we mentioned that uh, they have some options. How does Josh Donaldson arrival affect the roster in Atlanta? Well, it it does two things. It, It creates ripples, obviously, and it points out how deep this young Atlanta team is. Uh, 2018 surprise Johan Camargo now projects as an infield utility, even though he posted an 806 OPS in 464 at-bats last season. But they've already said, uh, the the manager has already said that Camargo is going to be in the lineup almost every day. His versatility will help him find playing time, especially with the health risk to Donaldson, offensive struggles of shortstop Dansby Swanson, and the fact that Camargo can play all over the place. He's going to be in the lineup, so don't write him off just because Donaldson got signed. Atlanta also has a top third base prospect, Austin Riley, who had his first 291 at-bats at AAA, hit 12 home runs, batting close to 300. Uh, He's blocked right now by Donaldson, but with the injury situation, who knows how long that blockage may actually last. So I guess maybe if you uh, if you're looking at Josh Donaldson and your league rules allow it, you might want to hedge your bet with Austin Riley on the chance uh, that maybe if Donaldson does get hurt and Riley's playing well in AAA again, uh, maybe he'll get called up. Maybe he'll make the team. Who knows? Uh, it sounds like Atlanta has some pieces to move in a trade. Also, should uh, should the team go sideways a little bit, maybe Donaldson would make an interesting trade piece for them, and he could get playing time somewhere else. Especially if he got to an American League team where he could DH a little, maybe stay on the field. Uh, our last big move next was Robinson Cano. He goes back to New York, but he's headed to Queens instead of the Bronx. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for Playing Time today. What should we expect from Robinson Cano on the New York Mets? Well, you know, there's, there's an interesting history lesson, I think, here. When Cano went from went from uh, the Yankees to Seattle, there was this projection that he would uh, his numbers would suddenly drop. 
moving out of the ballpark. It didn't happen. Uh, this guy is a good baseball player. Uh, and so I think we need to start with that. You've got a guy here with some good skills, but he's now 36. Uh, had lots of gas in the tank last year, an 845 OPS with very solid supporting metrics. Uh, didn't lose that much, doesn't lose that much in the home uh, venue league change. Uh, and for now, projects as the primary second baseman. So playing time is not likely to be an issue. And of course, uh, if you're ca- if the casual owner, uh, somebody who doesn't play fantasy baseball a lot, probably doesn't listen to this podcast, but I'll mention it anyway, uh, might look at Cano's 80 games or 90 games missed last year and think he's injury prone. But of course, that was a PED suspension, not an injury. So it's important to note that the playing time loss wasn't related to injury. Uh, but we talked about, uh, you're, you said that he's projected as the primary second baseman, so there's no playing time issues. But Cano's defense at second base started to slide in Seattle, uh, so much that the Mariners actually started playing him at first base and brought D. Gordon out of center field to play second. And, you know, that's not like you're putting Joe Morgan in there. So the, the, there's a question about Cano's ability to play second base defensively at a high enough level to maintain that slot. Well, as we said, he's 36 years old. I think that maybe the place we're starting to see his his game slide a little bit is in defense, uh, which, of course, shouldn't matter a lot to us on, in, in fantasy baseball, except it will matter how long he's on the field because they're not a DH slot for him now, uh, now that he's back in the National League. Uh, and it creates some interesting issues for the Mets if he can't manage the second base glove work. Uh, Jeff McNeil looked pretty good in his 2018 debut at second base. They still have Todd Frazier in the fold at third base. Uh, and they have some depth at first base in uh, prospects uh, Peter Alonzo and Dominic Smith. So the infield situation in New York, I think, is very, very, very far from settled. Uh, lots of moving pieces, uh, lots of things the manager can move around if he wants to. So I think we can bet that Cano will get his full share of, uh, of plate appearances and still has enough thump to make some good use of his swings. But uh, he may not get uh, 600 plate appearances. He may be closer to 450 this season. That's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think it is too, and it, it will be interesting because the Mets are pretty notoriously penurious with their money, and a lot of times, even though the situation indicates otherwise, uh, teams will make decisions based on who's got the biggest paycheck, and in this case, that's going to be Robinson Cano by a, by a fairly wide margin over any of the other guys that you mentioned, and uh, so it could be that even if Cano's struggling, he could stay on the field at second, he could block... Uh, the prospects at first, there's lots of different ways this could play out, but I think a lot of them point to Robinson Cano getting a lot of plate appearances as long as he's physically capable. Yeah, I think so too. All right, Nick, it was a busy off season. We still haven't even got Manny Machado and Bryce Harper signed anywhere yet, so thanks for joining me here on our first show of the Baseball HQ Radio season. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Things are certainly gearing up, and uh, it's going to be a fun preseason. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has been our man on the National League beat since we were delivering the podcast on 8-track tapes. Now let's head over to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, PD. Good to be here. I know, isn't it? It's been a long off-season, a cold, cold winter here in Canada and in the uh, U.S. Midwest. So uh, looking forward to spring training, looking forward to spring, looking forward to summer, looking forward to warm weather and baseball. Let's start in a place in the United States where you haven't had quite as bad a weather. Your neck of the woods down there in Anaheim, uh, the Angels. Pretty rough bullpen season in 2018, and they signed uh, former Cleveland closer Cody Allen to be their closer in 2019. How does this affect the overall Angels bullpen, do you think? 
Well, I, I was a little bit surprised. The Angels released Bud Norris, who wasn't a great shakes as closer, but he, he got most of their 2018 saves. Uh, he, I think he got 28 of them. Uh, he was an adventure for most of the season, particularly in the second half. So now the signing of Allen, he, he, with the, he, he owns this job now. Um, with the caveat that a one-year deal like this is never too awful, uh, Allen really struggled last year, especially in the second half. Uh, um, his his uh, velocity was down all year. Uh, in the second half, I think his ERA was, was near six, and his peripherals weren't very good. Um, he has plenty of rope at the outset. This isn't an experienced Angel pen, but I'm still watching for volatility and maybe even his replacement at some point. I don't think this necessarily puts... Uh, the the Anaheim uh, ninth inning to bed. Yeah, when I saw Allen get signed uh, in Anaheim, I thought the same thing. Oh, now the situation is finally going to be settled. But then I I looked at uh, Allen's last couple of years, and everything went bad last year in the skills department. His strikeouts per nine were down from twelve three to ten seven. His walks were almost double two eight to four four. You know, everything not looking good. First pitch strike rates down, swinging strike rates down. There's a lot of reasons to suspect that Cleveland cut bait on a guy just at the right time. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the one thing he still has going for for him, even though it, it was down a little bit last year, he still gets uh, good swinging strikes. Maybe the Angels can fix something. But uh, I, uh, the Angels have a lot of hard throwers in that bullpen, and not all of them are proven, but all of them have shown some signs, and some of them last year. So uh, I, if you're looking for saves, I'd still keep an eye on that situation. Well, a lot of leagues nowadays have really deep reserves. So if you are of a mind to acquire... Uh, Cody Allen through the draft process or through the auction process and you have a big reserve who in that Angels bullpen do you think you should be hedging with well the guy I liked at the end of last year was Ty Buttry who they got from the Red Sox in the uh, uh, Ian Kinsler deal he, he um, had three or four very impressive outings before uh, I think he, he had a few injury problems in the, in the last two uh, his last couple of games and his season was um uh, stopped uh, before 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 it ended, but uh, he looked very good. He had an improving changeup, lots of swing and miss. Uh, Keenan Middleton, he's a Tommy John outpatient uh, from last year. He should be back by mid-year. I really liked him before he went down. Even Hansa Robles, uh, he he came over to the Angels, uh, still throwing around 97, still getting lots of swing and misses. He he obviously has some things to improve on with his control, but uh, he stepped up for the Angels in the uh, the month or so, month and a half that he was there. Uh, again, all unproven guys, but all who get plenty of swing and miss and maybe are, are good health or an adjustment or two away from taking a step up. Yeah, it's always uh, a cautionary note here that uh, Ty Buttry had 16 big league innings last year, so you don't want to s- sort of draw a profile based on it. But 11 strikeouts per nine and 2.8 walks per nine works out to a four strikeouts for every walk kind of record, and that's pretty impressive, actually, especially, as I said, compared to Cody Allen, was not in that same ballpark skills-wise, but does have the longer track record, so maybe there's something to that as well. Over in Seattle, the Mariners are now rebuilding. Boy, Jerry DePoto, he's a former Angels executive, and it's a real teardown job. This is not a case of, uh, you know, changing the light fixtures in the bathroom. He's tearing everything apart and rebuilding it from scratch, and that includes their bullpen. They traded closer Edwin Diaz, had a fantastic year last year, and they also had uh, former Tampa closer Alex Colomay on the roster, both gone, and they announced the signing of Hunter Strickland this past week. He saved 14 for San Francisco last year. So is it Hunter Strickland at the back end of the bullpen now as the closer, or what's going on in Seattle? 
Well, Rod Truesdale does the playing time for Seattle, and he has Strickland for about 50% of the saves, which may be about right. I mean, we can quibble over it. Strickland got nine of his saves for the Giants last year in April and May, and then he fell off a cliff. His I, I don't like his skills. They're not particularly impressive. His velocity and swinging strike rate uh, uh, trends aren't aren't good, and his control's always been volatile. Um I don't know. If you put a gun to my head, I, I'd almost rather go with Anthony Swarzak over Strickland, but it really speaks to the problem they have over there. Uh, um, I, I, I would, if you're looking for saves, I would keep an eye on it, but I don't, I don't like either of those names long-term in Seattle. I, I don't know who's going to wind up closing for them. Yeah, and the problem is uh, when you look at a team like Seattle, I did a report, I don't know if you remember it, a research report a couple of years ago trying to decide what the question of do you want more uh, a closer on a poorer team because there's going to be more narrow wins to save, or do you want a guy on a team with lots of wins because there's lots of wins to save? And it turned out it wasn't really that close. You want a guy on a winning team, and say what you will about the Mariners this year, they're probably not going to be a winning team. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think their their everyday lineup is that bad. They can still score some runs. Uh, lots of questions about their, their rotation, particularly with Paxton gone and uh, uh, and being backfilled by a rookie like uh, Justice Sheffield, uh, I think you're right. I think they're going to struggle. They're not going to. Uh, last year, I think they won 89 games. They're going to be probably a few games under 500 at least this year, uh, depending on how good the division is. But uh, yeah, there, there's a, there's a real question mark as to how many savable contests are going to be in Seattle next year. And for right now, I was looking at the Baseball HQ Seattle depth chart, and when you count up the percentage of saves, it doesn't even total 100. So there's a great deal of uncertainty here, not just with Strickland and Swarzak, but just in general. Yeah, you're right. And uh, and as we all know, Jerry Depoto is always ready to pull the trigger. So maybe one of us will give him a call and see what's going on. <laughs> well, it won't be me. But, uh, of course, uh, he's a former Angels guy, as I said. So maybe you can uh, work your way in that way. <laughs> Before we move on, uh, Seattle also signed the Japanese pitcher, Yusei Kikuchi. Have you heard anything about this situation and what we should expect? I haven't. And, uh, and when we were talking about the rotation, I momentarily forgot about him. But he might be the best pitcher in that rotation right now at least the, the most of the projections I'm seeing obviously I haven't seen him pitch so I have no, no idea what to expect but uh, Japanese pitchers have a pretty good track record coming over here particularly the proven ones and he was that over in Japan I think uh, um, a lot of people are projecting a sub four ERA and uh, you know maybe 10 wins or something like that so he may be the go-to guy for the Mariners this year. Baseball HQ is projecting a 360 with a 123 whip. And the cautionary note here, uh, I was listening to a to a podcast and they discussed Kikuchi. And one of the things about him that you got to be be wary of is he wasn't a big strikeout pitcher in Japan. And the strikeout rates in Japan tend to decline a little bit when they get to the major leagues because the major league hitters are just better across the board. So if you're looking for a lot of strikeouts from Kikuchi, it might not be the right place to be looking because uh, we're projecting a dominance rate of just eight strikeouts per nine innings, which is not elite. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good cautionary point. I had not looked again at the uh, at at his strikeouts very closely uh, um, this year. I. I don't have a draft pick that high enough to get him in our in our supplemental keeper draft, so it's not a guy I've studied too hard. But that's going to be interesting watching. I'm 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 heading to spring training in early March, and he's one of those guys I'm going to try to keep in my radar. If I see him uh, that he's scheduled to pitch, I'm going to hustle over to uh, Peoria or wherever the uh, the Mariners are playing that day and see if I can catch it. 
deep in the heart of Texas, a huge uh, shoes to fill with the retirement of Adrian Beltre. Looks like the Rangers have signed Asdrubal Cabrera to take over at third base. It's just a one-year deal. Uh, how does Asdrubal Cabrera look in Texas? And please don't compare him to a future Hall of Famer. <laughs> Yeah, really. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what, though. Globe Life Park is a really nice landing spot for Cabrera, whose whose skills and health have been very consistent over the years. Uh, it was kind of fun looking over his history. Uh, I was looking over the historical uh, tab at, uh, at Baseball HQ and looking at the skills. Uh, this is uh, this is a guy who, who uh, I mean, he's not an all-star, but um, um, based on how durable he's been, he can help a team, and and if uh, if people are forgetting about him, which uh, I I think they might be, um, uh, he qualifies at at shortstop, second base, and third base. Uh, what a nice little player here! Yeah, I thought so too. When I first heard the signing, I went to the historical tab on uh, Baseball HQ's player records and. In the database, and I was looking at it, and it surprised me. 23 home runs in 2016 and 23 home runs again last year, both in the 520 to 550 range for at-bats. And uh, actually a, a 262 average last year, which is not great, but it's certainly pretty great for the current ba- batting average environment. And he's got a couple of 280s in the previous two years, so uh, he seems to be able to got, be a guy who could not exactly replace Adrian Beltre, but it's not going to be the gigantic fall-off that reputation might suggest. Yeah, exactly. And now he's in a good hitter's park. So um, he, he's a guy, if, if somebody throws him back in our supplemental draft, I might, I might be targeting. Yeah, and I think the ballpark you mentioned, uh, left-handed home runs get boosted by 17%, so that's obviously going to be a help for uh, Asdrubal Cabrera as well. The Yankees made a couple of signings that I'm curious about your opinion on. Uh, DJ LeMahieu signs a two-year deal, $12 million a year, and it, very surprisingly, Troy Tulowitzki gets a one-year contract basically for league minimum because the Blue Jays are on the hook for the balance of that ghastly deal. Uh, what's First of all, let's talk about DJ LeMahieu. Where do you see him fitting in in New York, uh, especially with the uh, shortstop uh, Didi Gregorius on the shelf? Yeah, Matt Dodge obviously does our playing time projections for the Yankees, and uh, it seems like uh, LeMahieu will uh, get most of the at-bats at second base uh, with Glaber Torres moving over to third while while uh, uh, Didi Gregoris is is uh, I'm sorry moving over to a shortstop while uh, Didi, Didi Gregorius is recovering from Tommy John surgery. Um, when Gregorius returns, um, the Yankees will probably try to turn LeMahieu into utility, maybe hopefully more successful than they did, did Neil Walker last year. At Yankee Stadium isn't an awful landing spot for him, at least from a power standpoint uh, and, and the new surrounding lineup uh, if, if you have to leave Coors Field. But he's going to take a batting average hit lead, leaving Coors. And uh, I looked at his skills last year. They fell off a little bit. Uh, he's now, um, what, uh, uh, let me call this up here he's 30 years old so that's not a little surprising um, there there's always some risk moving to a club like the Yankees if you're a regular because particularly if you're a regular uh, that may not have a, a a permanent position because if you have a bad uh, you have a bad couple of weeks or, or you get injured uh, they always have somebody to replace you as Neil Walker found out last year yeah, and they've got uh, some other infield chips that they might be able to play. A Danny Hetcheverry, I believe, is uh, on the roster for now. What do you think of Troy Tulowitzki here? 
I actually think for Tulo, and, and they're not they're not equal players right now. I'd probably have LeMahieu, but I think it's a pretty good landing spot for Tulo. He's trying to revive his career, and no one's expecting him to start uh, on opening day. Uh, uh, the same playing time risk applies, but uh, and he's going to need a fast start in injuries to gain any traction. But uh, if he can stay healthy, uh, Yankee Stadium's a pretty good place to play ball. Yeah, I think the key phrase there is if he can stay healthy because, gosh, over the last number of years, he just simply has not been able to stay healthy, and that's a real problem for a guy 34 years old coming off a pretty bad injury uh, year in Toronto. Yeah, uh, and again, I'm not expecting great shakes from Tulowiski, but it's the type of thing that if he's healthy in April and all of a sudden he gets an opportunity, um, who knows, right? Well, all the same, if you said uh, I'll set the uh, on the roster May 15th, I'll take the under. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In Tampa, this is a smart team. You know, they seem to have a real good idea of what they're doing, and they, they're really good at shopping for bargains. And I feel like they might have got a bargain in signing uh, ex-White Sox outfielder Avisail Garcia. I think so, too. He's only 28 years old, and yeah, he's had a, a few health issues. He had them last year, but this is a guy who hit 19 home runs and 356 at-bats. He's still only 28. He seems to be growing into his power a little bit. He, he still hits too many too many ground balls, but his uh, home run per fly ball rate is, is pretty impressive. Uh, I think this is another good, I'm with you, I think this is another good signing by Tampa Bay. Of course, the question is, where is he going to play? We have to expect that Tommy Pham and Kevin Kiermeyer are going to dominate the playing time in the outfield positions, and that leaves a, a fair bunch of guys battling for the DH uh, at-bats and uh, that last outfield slot. Uh, Carlos Gomez is still there. Uh, maybe Guillermo Heredia is still there. Uh, G-Man Choi might soak up some at-bats at, at designated hitter. And, of course, they've got the rookie Austin Meadows from last year who looked okay. How are they going to balance all of that, and how does the addition of Avisail Garcia affect the battle for playing time amongst all those other guys? Yeah, that's a real good question, and that's that's the caveat that you that you have when you when you head over to Tampa Bay. There always seems to be a bunch of guys uh, um uh, Heredia, I, I even wonder whether he's going to get 40%, the 40% playing time we project on him. He he, he doesn't hit right-handed pitching well at all. He's really kind of a lefty guy, and, and uh, um, they've got a lot of uh, – a lot of right-handed hitters now, and in, in Garcia, for that matter, I w- wouldn't surprise me to see uh, Heredia start the year in the uh, in the minors if he has options left. Uh, Gomez is kind of past prime. Uh, Kiermaier uh, has an injury list as long as um, uh, Garcia does, or at least recently. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It might be the whoever the healthiest is on opening day is going to get the first shot. Yeah, you know the guy that interests me out of all of this bunch is Meadows. Uh, I think because people are going to look in the early going, they're, they're going to look at the situation and go, Meadows is the obvious guy not to play, right? He's got options. They can put him in the minor leagues and hold on for a while. But as you said, Kiermaier's a real injury risk, and Pham has had some injury problems over the last couple of years. Garcia had injury problems just last year. And Carlos Gomez has never been a paragon of health either. You know, when you look at this lineup of guys, uh, excluding G-Man Choi at DH, but when you look at this lineup of guys, you think to yourself, man, it's not going to be, you know, completely beyond the realm of probability that Austin Meadows is completely going to be lacking for, a, for a, a playing time shot. It looks like there's plenty of ways for him to get on, onto the field. 
Yeah, I agree. And and to be fair, I mean, Meadows has had his injury problems, but uh, most of those were a few years ago. He's pretty healthy last year, and you're right. He looked good. This is a good hype, a good post-hype prospect play, in, in my opinion. Yeah, if I'm looking at, at, uh, at Tampa Bay's outfield and, and, and have a pick, I might take Austin Meadows over all of them, at least in a keeper league, just because uh, uh, of, of what he might produce over the next uh, – you know, three to five years. Yeah, and a lot depends on what your roster looks like at the time the name comes up in an auction or when the slot comes up in a straight draft or snake draft. I don't mind any of these guys, to tell you the truth. I could see myself taking, uh, if the price was right, I could see myself taking Garcia. I could certainly see myself taking Meadows, especially in a dynasty or keeper format. Uh, I don't know about G-Man Choi, frankly, but uh, any of these guys looks like they could be, uh, you could benefit from the uncertainty, shall we say. Uh, finally, yeah. the Twins signed uh, ex-Seattle DH Nelson Cruz to a deal. Uh, obviously, he's going to take Joe Maurer's place in the DH slot, but that still leaves twin, the Twins with something of a, a logjam, a lot of big, heavy-set first-base DH types to sort through. It's kind of like the Tampa outfield situation, but with big, heavy guys. Yeah, um, this signing was a little bit of a surprise to me, though. It shows that the Twins think they can contend in a weak division, and they're probably right if things break better than uh, last year's disaster. Uh, But what it means is that, um, for example, Miguel Sano would better be able to play third base or perhaps first base, and that uh, one of uh, C.J. Crone or Tyler Austin, who were, like you said, big-bodied first base DH types, they're going to lose at bats and perhaps a roster spot on opening day. So it makes for some settled, unsettled playing time uh, particularly at that first base uh, spot uh, and, and coming off the bench. Uh, Cruz is still kind of a wonder. He hit 37 homers last year. He's 39 years old, and eventually he's going to begin to slide downhill a little bit. But he didn't sl- show that much slippage power-wise last year. And Minnesota's a slightly better park for him than Seattle, so I think he's still a good 30 home run bet unless he decides to make this year the year he falls off a cliff. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis uh Obviously, the uh, third base situation could be a little bit uh, problematic if Miguel Sano figures to play there because he certainly hasn't distinguished himself with the glove, although he's got a rocket arm. I've seen him play, and boy, he can really fire the pill once he surrounds it and sort of beats it into submission. Uh, Unfortunately, by that time, a lot of times the uh, runner's going to have easily crossed first base. And it makes me think, where does this all leave Ehire Adrianza, who looked pretty good last year in a sort of a limited role? Yeah, um, there's going to be some competition there. I don't think I don't think the Twins want it to fall apart on them quite like it did last year. So they've got some backup and they've got some depth this year. Yeah, Adrianza last year hit 251. He had six home runs and five bags, and that was only in 300 and some at bats. So he could be a double digit guy if he had full time. Uh, playing time. However, you, you have to believe that the Twins are going to bend over backwards looking for opportunities to get Sano, which kind of really limits uh, Adrianza's potential. Yeah, exactly. I think Sano is in an age and he has too much power to give up on. Um, he's He's got some things to prove. He's going to have to come to camp in shape. I own him in one of my leagues and uh, a lot is going to depend. On, my keeping him is going to depend on what I see in spring training. And a bit of news that just came across the wire. Houston has signed starting pitcher Wade Miley to a one-year deal. And to me, this is a surprising move, uh, Jock. He's coming off a pretty good second half in Milwaukee. He had a new pitch and a 2.66 ERA over 14 starts with the Brewers. But he's really not that good a pitcher. I don't know. What do you think <laughs> of uh, Wade Miley in Houston? 
Yeah, we're in this. We're coming from the same spot in this. Uh, it seems strange to me, although not even a team like Houston can can really have enough pitching as it's been proven. But Houston is one of those clubs with a lot of starting pitching options. Uh, behind Berlander and Cole, the Astros still seem committed to moving uh, Colin McHugh back to the rotation. So it appears that Miley will slot somewhere behind those three. And this leaves one spot up for grabs between rookie Josh James, who looked really good at the end of last year, and Brad Peacock, who looked real good in the rotation in 2017 before moving to the bullpen last year. And and maybe Framber Valdez, who also pitched well. But they have Forrest Whitley, uh, who's consensus uh, top prospect top pitching prospect in baseball and other rookies uh, perhaps getting consideration a few months into the season. Uh, the big problem I see is Miley's peripherals don't support that this kind of performance that he had last year. I think he, I think his ERA was something like 2.68, uh, but he only whiffed six batters per nine innings. His control isn't spectacular. Maybe he holds his own again, but I sure wouldn't be betting on a 2018 repeat here. I think that's right. Uh, the first thing that jumps out of you is that very low strikeout rate. And uh, that, of course, is always going to be a concern in a strikeout-focused environment. But I think maybe the opportunity here, Jock, might be a guy like Forrest Whitley when uh, drafters are looking at the situation in Houston and they say, gosh, there's already four guys in place. There's playing time considerations. There's service time considerations. I don't think Forrest Whitley's going to be on the roster. And you might look at it and go, he might not be on the roster in April, but he sure could be on the roster by the middle of May or, or the end of May because Wade Miley's not that good, <laughs> and, and Forrest Whitley's really good. And so this might be an opportunity to catch Forrest Whitley on a kind of an ebb in his price. Yeah, I think Whitley's biggest problem is that he missed most of last year's with the uh, uh, recreational drug suspension and then with a, a bunch of injuries, oblique. Uh, I don't think he pitched more than 40 or 50 innings last year i'd have to go check but uh he will be on a uh an innings limit um so i i wonder how much we can get out of whitney how whitley how much we can expect maybe 80 90 innings maybe 100 innings who knows but certainly not much more than that and he doesn't have a lot of experience i think he has only uh 28 30 uh innings in double a nothing in triple a so um I'm more looking at Whitley as a June, you know, July kind of guy, and he's going to have to stay healthy to do it. True enough. Uh, the only the only thing about that is it may depress his price at the uh, at the auctions and drafts this spring, and I think maybe that could present a buying opportunity because I'd way rather have 90 innings of Forrest Whitley than 90 innings of Wade Miley. Hey man, I'll buy that as well. <laughs> okay, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. It's great to have you back, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, and he's been our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio, doing a great job for low these many years. When we return, it's our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and our Market Watch position previews are coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield has those forecaster upside speculations we talked about earlier in the show. In our regular facts and flukes column, analyst Greg Pyron validates the performances of Jamison Tyon, Andrew McCutcheon, Austin Hedges, and more players. And in the bullpen buyer's guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at new faces and some of the remaining free agents. And that's just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. 
There's news updates and playing time today, roster forecasts and playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides, not just for relievers, but for hitters and starters. There's fantasy market analysis and all those great tools, the player projections, the custom draft guide, the daily tools, so much more. It's all content and tools that you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 1-1 pitch. He popped him up. He's going to get it. Rochus down from third. Rochus makes the catch. Ball game over. A perfect game. A perfect game for David Cohn. The third time works like a charm. It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Position Preview Report. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Tampa first baseman Nate Lowe. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Welcome aboard. Hopefully many of our frequent flyers from 2018 are already rising quickly up your draft board. Of course, as we mentioned quite often in 2018 and years past, there's no guarantees when it comes to frequent flyers. That's why all of our frequent flyers should be considered to be log shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. So go ahead, sit back, relax, fasten your seatbelts, and get ready for takeoff, because our first frequent flyer of the 2019 season is 23-year-old Tampa Bay Rays first baseman Nathaniel Nate Lowe, a big-bind first-base-only prospect closing in his Major League debut, according to Baseball HQ's newly minted 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Through three levels of the minors in 2018, beginning with the Class A advanced Charlotte Stone Crabs and progressing all the way up to the AAA Durham Bulls on August 8th, Nate Lowe has batted a combined 330 with 27 home runs and 102 runs batted in. <laughs> Impressive. In fact, Nate Lowe has compiled a nifty 303 career batting average in the minors since being drafted by Tampa in the 13th round in 2016. Plus, Nate Lowe's excellent 81% contact rate, combining minor league stats from all three levels in 2018, is right on track and even slightly above his career 79% contact rate in the minors. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com look for contact rates, which measure the batter's ability to get wood on the ball to exceed 80% or better for elite hitters. In other words, despite traversing through three levels of the minors, Nate Lowe's 81% contact rate in 2018 has far exceeded our expectations. Nevertheless, it's important to remember that Nate Lowe has only played in 28 AAA games and will likely start the season in the minors, not in Tampa Bay. That's why Nate Lowe, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available deep in your 2019 draft. <laughs> See, we warned you it was coming. 
digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, if we use the aforementioned 81% contact rate as a leading indicator, combined with his 12% walk rate in 2018, we can reasonably expect Nate Lowe to bat in the neighborhood of 276 in 2019, according to our benchmarks. Compare that to Nate Lowe's major league equivalency, not a projection, but a conversion of his current stats to a 278 batting average at the major league level, according to BaseballHQ.com, and we can certainly see some consistency between a projected 276 batting average and a major league equivalent of a 278 batting average. Based on that analysis, I'm betting a 277 batting average, and maybe you should too. Be betting on Nate Lowe, our first frequent flyer of 2019. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the Baseball HQ Radio Market Watch Position Previews. We're looking at the mismatches between HQ player valuations and their current ADPs. Here with a scan of the DH and catcher markets is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Welcome to our position previews for 2019. We're here to help you prepare for your drafts and auctions, make keeper decisions, and evaluate preseason trades. We'll follow the lead of BaseballHQ.com Market Pulse columnist Matt Cederholm and take the positions in order of their scarcity. We begin with catchers and designated hitters today, continue in the coming weeks through middle infielders, corner infielders, and outfielders, starting pitchers, and relief pitchers. We'll uncover some undervalued players by highlighting Matt's comparisons between our straight draft rankings and early average draft positions, and we'll be referencing the universal draft grid from our 2019 baseball forecaster. The Forecaster's Universal Draft Grid ranks players into seven tiers for each position. The top catcher, Jacob Realmuto, is in the third tier. Wilson Contreras and Yadier Molina are in the fourth tier. There are eight more catchers in the fifth tier. In his Market Pulse column, Matt Cederholm wrote, quote, The drop-off after the top seven is huge, unquote. And in the 2018 Forecaster, we reminded readers of our research showing that the only group of players who return negative value are $1 or late round catchers. The question is, can you afford the opportunity costs of going after one of those top few catchers? What will it cost you to use an earlier draft pick or an extra dollar? There may be enough decent catchers to go around in a 10-team mixed league with one catcher, but not likely in any other format. So besides the names everyone's after, who are some under-the-radar targets to research further? Market Pulse's Matt Cederholm and our Universal Draft Grid put two twins on that list, Mitch Garver and Williams Astudillo, but note that Jason Castro is returning to the Twin Cities mix. There are other teams' pairings aplenty to explore, including Austin Hedges and Francisco Mejia in San Diego, Tyler Flowers and Brian McCann in Atlanta, Jan Gomes and Kurt Suzuki in D.C., and Francisco Cervelli and Elias Diaz in Pittsburgh. And how about a pairing of youngsters starting on different teams, Jorge Alfaro in Philadelphia and Danny Jansen in Toronto? Or former backups moving into starting roles, Omar Narvaez in Anaheim and Robinson Torinos in Houston? Or bounce-back candidates Austin Barnes in L.A. and Wellington Castillo in the south side of Chicago. Mejia and Jansen still have MLB rookie status, as does new Arizona starter Carson Kelly. If you have a minor league draft, you may be able to grab them there. Turning to designated hitters, most fantasy owners are reluctant to draft a DH only into the UT spot. The Universal Draft Grid has only two DHs in the third tier, three in the fourth, 
and four in the fifth. But Market Pulse's Matt Cederholm says Chris Davis is a foundational player worthy of a second-round pick. Davis's early ADP of 46 is 19 spots later than his Baseball HQ ranking of 27. And depending on your league's rules, his 11 games in the outfield may make him eligible there, or he may gain eligibility this year if he meets your league's in-season threshold. Shohei Otani joins Davis as one of the two DHs in Tier 3 of our Universal Draft Grid. We have him ranked at 57, and his early ADP is 122. What's with the 65-slot difference? It's playing time uncertainty. Estimates have Otani returning to hit after Tommy John surgery as early as May and as late as July. Watch for spring training news on Otani. Kendris Morales may be in the fifth tier of the Universal Draft Grid, but he and Chris Davis are the only DHs with AAA reliability grades for health, playing time, and consistency. We have Morales ranked at 305, and his early ADP is 465. That gap of 160 is the largest in the Market Pulse chart, making Morales the biggest bargain among catchers and designated hitters. He also had 18 games at first base in 2018. To sum up, remember that $1 or late-round catchers can hurt you. If you're still in a two-catcher league, change the roster requirements or consider changing leagues. Decide how much opportunity cost you're willing to invest, and if you're not targeting one of the known names, research those no-name and new-name catchers. Don't be afraid to roster a DH at UT. Use the custom draft guide to get player rankings and values specific to your leagues, and stay ahead of your league mates with the Market Pulse series. Good luck with your catcher and designated hitter plans, and tune in next week to preview middle infielders. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick will have his Market Watch position preview series all throughout the preseason here at Baseball HQ Radio. And when the season starts, he'll be the weekend pitcher matchups analyst. When we come back, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy. That's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitch is a high fly ball to right deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now. And it's taken away from him by a fan. And they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Pitching Garcia is calling it a home run. And Tarasco is out to argue. A terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all time out. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy. And Ray, I'd like to start by going back to your FSTA draft you provided Brent Hershey, your partner, with a cheat sheet for your first 10 rounds, and I was hoping to look at some of your thinking there. And the first thing I noticed was that you had Max Scherzer alone in round one, the only pitcher, and that's where you eventually took him, of course. Then you had a bunch of starting pitchers in that second round, third round group, but Chris Sale wasn't listed. And I'm presuming that was because you didn't have him as a first rounder. You knew there was no shot at him in the second. Was that it? More than I was just pretty sure he was going to go somewhere you know, after our first round pick and before our second. But also, I think, um, you know, I, I'm pretty risk averse with those early picks. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm watching the situation pretty closely from here in Boston. I'm not that worried about sale, but I'm also not completely comfortable with him to, to spend a first or second round draft pick on him right now, at least until I see him come to spring training and beyond something resembling a normal you know, throwing schedule or being ramping up, you know, toward being ready for opening day. Just, you know, I, I need to see him clear one or two hurdles publicly on a mound before I, before I could invest that kind of pick in him. 
And since you know somebody's going to take him high, uh, late one, early two, no point in even listing him. Uh, you, in your round two and three starting pitchers, you had uh, Kluber, Carrasco, Nola, and Cole in round two. Bauer, Verlander, Snell, Bueller, Corbin, Paxton, Strasburg, Granke, Clevenger, and Tyon in three. Plenty of picks there. Are those in order of preference, or do you really care? Are they just kind of lumped and fungible? Uh, I'll take any one of these guys in round two if he falls to me kind of thing. They were mostly tiered. I think the biggest distinction that I could draw between them, I'll talk about one of them later, but um, in, in particular the biggest dis- distinction I could draw is I think there's a tier between, uh, you know, getting back to the conversation about Scherzer and the innings, and the innings I, I think there's a workload concern that knocks down the Paxton, Strasburg, even Bueller, perhaps Tyone tier that, um, you know, the, those guys who probably max out at 180 innings are, you know, need to get knocked down a little bit uh, below the guys who max out at 190 to 200. Because with Strasburg and Paxton, maybe even Bueller, you're probably, you know, you're, you're, you're ba- your baseline projection for them probably needs to be in the 160s. So if we talked about, Scherzer being 120% of a starting pitcher, you know, those guys are only 80, 85% of a starting pitcher. So uh, you got to discount them a little bit, as, as good as their skills are. You had a shot at Salvador Perez in round nine, which would have been right in line with where you had him on your cheat sheet, but you went with Justin Turner instead, and Perez went with the very next pick. Uh, why did you guys think uh, Salvador Perez was not, the guy for you when you could have Justin Turner instead, given the catcher situation. Yeah, it's uh, he he was of interest for sure there. Um, I think we ended up going with Turner, and it was and then the next round went with Corey Dickerson, and both those guys in particular, we were chasing a little bit of batting average cushion. Uh, you know, with um, you know, after those early speed guys, uh, we had gone and you know focused on banging out a bunch of power, and after getting. Eugenio Suarez, Nelson Cruz, Travis Shaw, Edwin Encarnacion, you know, in a flood of power there. Uh, you know, we spent a little bit of batting average cushion to do that. So Turner and Dickerson were really about sort of, you know, re-solidifying the batting average, knowing that, you know, batting average was going to continue to take a hit a little bit with, uh, you know, catchers later. Uh, and then, you know, Molina, you know, was sort of of the same ilk. He was, you know, he's not the most... Uh, you know, he's not a 25 home run catcher, but you know he's going to prop up the batting average as well, better than just about any other catcher who was still on the board at that point. So uh, the batting average protection was a theme there. One of the sort of singular joys and uh, and emotional factors in in snake drafting is getting sniped. Like it's that it's that the guy's getting closer and closer to you. I'm going to get him. Oh no! Was there anybody in the draft so far? And I know it's not over, but did you did you get sniped on anybody you really wish you hadn't? You know, we we mentioned the Giles and Leclerc thing earlier. We had a preference for Giles over Leclerc. It wasn't strong. Uh, we probably should have taken Giles in round ten instead of Corey Dickerson, but we thought we'd be able to sneak into the slow draft portion after. But you know, we changed from. Uh, the live draft of the slow draft between rounds 10 and 11 and somebody obviously went back to the drawing board and decided that Giles was, uh, you know, should go early in the slow draft, which I certainly, uh, you know, we were of the same mind. So that seems like somebody read the, read the room correctly. Um, there was one other, oh, uh, you know what it was? There was another one uh, when we took Edwin Encarnacion in round eight. Um, I think we Eddie Rosario went right before him and I think we would have taken him if he was, uh, if he had come back to us one more pick. Uh, so that the difference between Rosario and Encarnacion is somewhat 
based in batting average. So, uh, you know, because of that, I think that would that talking about the previous conversation that pick of Encarnacion rather than Rosario was part of what steered us toward Justin Turner over Sal Perez in the next round because of the, uh, the batting average hit we took with E with the five. I was looking at that round also uh, where you took Encarnacion, given the batting average issues, as you mentioned, and I saw that Jose Abreu went right before Rosario. I wonder if you'd have taken Abreu had he fallen. He was right there too. Yeah. He, uh, so that was a, uh, wasn't quite a double snipe, but it was, um, it was about yeah, a couple of people who were seemingly drafting from the same list as us at that point. Yeah, sometimes sometimes that's the way it works out, right? Uh, and of course, when you're dealing with a bunch of experts, you got to realize or expect, and probably in in any league, most of the guys are going to have a very similar tiering system set up. So you can't be shocked or surprised when somebody takes uh, Abreu over Encarnacion over Rosario. They're three very similar guys, and it's just something that's going to happen. What's more interesting is when you get sniped by somebody who jumps three rounds on you, and and you say, "What the hell's he doing doing that?" But that doesn't tend to happen as much as it used to. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I find some. I don't know if it's just a um, you know a, a dynamic in NFBC leagues or industry you know industry leagues or whatever. But I, I feel like the the jumping of people gets worse the deeper we get into draft season. And like jumping, like you're talking about jumping somebody three rounds. You know, where multiple people you know pushing guys way up the draft board seems to happen you know, in mid to late March more than it does now. And I don't know if that's just that people see the ADP in March as more crystallized and they start reacting to it or or thinking other people are reacting to it and really just using that as more of a, you know, more of a Bible. And then if there's somebody they want, they're really saying, well, his ADP is here, so I better, you know, I, I, I better make a hard correction if I want him earlier. But it seems like that, you know, right now you don't see a ton of that, but, you know, inevitably any every year by – by by mid late March, I feel like the, the you know the, the the aggression on um, guys with helium just gets a lot worse as we get closer to opening day. Yeah, in that respect, it's like there should be somebody trying to figure out how to do ADPs on a weighted basis. Like the older the draft, the less weight it carries because the main thing that's going to happen, of course, is playing time decisions are going to be made and guys are going to get hurt in spring training, and. As a result, uh, somebody who's, uh, I mean, to take a, an example just off the board at random, uh, Chris Bryant is a third-round guy. We all kind of agree on that, sort of late second, early third type guy. And, and uh, you know, what if he goes into spring training and gets hit on the hand and he's going to lose six weeks? All of a sudden his ADP plummets and his average changes. And then if you're not paying attention to the fact of early ADPs versus late ones, you can really get misled by the ADPs. Yeah, that's true. And it's... Um you know, the NFBC site's pretty good about that. They have a t- they they have a tool now where you can do ADP by date range, which at this point is you know helpful because you can go back to say drafts since the first of the year and eliminate some of the guys like oh, I mentioned Cody Allen earlier, who player movement have you know re- sort of redefined their role in their draft slot as a result. But in March that gets hard because the news comes so quickly, and if you want to do ADP for the last week, you can do that and you'll get better data from it in terms of you know accounting for the news. But now the sample size gets a little sketchy. So you know there's a um, you know, there's um, ADP ADP is a tool and but ADP is also, you know, sort of inevitably more of a sledgehammer than a scalpel, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, is there anybody that you're extra happy that you got that you thought maybe you'd get sniped on and didn't? 
and and did you jump anybody yourselves at this stage just to make sure of getting them? Um, I think you know when we were talking about that partnership with um, Brent earlier. Um, one of the one of the only places where we disagreed is in round thirteen where we took John Gray from Colorado. Um, I wanted um, Kenta Maeda there, um, and it turned out we took Gray. And then we came back the next round, and Maeda was still there, so we got him too. So that was one of the only places where uh, my hive mind with my co-GMs sort of, you know, at least had some mild disagreement, and we somehow ended up getting, you know, satisfying both sides of the mind. So that was uh, that was one that, being the person who deferred on the first pick, I was pretty happy to get the guy back back around later. Did you notice any big stretches or really fantastic bargains uh, by anybody else in the draft besides your own team? Um. You know, I I tend to digest these things when they're over. I have not taken a close look at the strategies that anybody else was really playing out. Um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll kind of take a walk through the teams as we get toward the end of the draft. Nothing stood out to me as egregious, even just scanning it now. I don't see, I guess, um, you know, I, I don't see a lot of divergence in terms of waiting on pitching. Or I, I think one of the things that I, you know, one of the things I can comment on is with that horror show closer thing. Um, I've been off the top closers this year just um, because I feel like that there's a dynamic there that because of the horror show aspect we talked about that the top the top tier of closers are getting bit up even earlier than I'm comfortable taking them. So any time in round, I'm trying to see where the closers went here. Any time in round five or six when the closers start coming off the board. Um, I'm happy because that's one more pick that comes back closer to me with a player I wasn't even considering at that point. So when Diaz and Trinan come off the board in round five, you know, that's not to say they're not bad. That's not to say they're bad picks, but, you know, they're, like we were saying, people at different points in the draft could be working off of basically different lists. And anytime I see those things happen, I'm happy because that um, that's just not a consideration for me at that point, at least not in the drafts I've done so far. I wondered what you thought about uh, Vlad Jr. going in round four. Uh, does that strike you as early or, or a reasonable bet, or how risky is it? Um, it it's risky. I've, I've seen him go even earlier than that, so <clears throat> it didn't stand out to me in terms of you know what, what's been happening in other drafts. Um, I had a fantastic debate with uh, Jock Thompson and Kimball Crosley out in Arizona about Vlad, and I am sort of always of the mind that this kind of pick on a player with no major league track record is not something I will do. I, I won't, won't go so far as to call it a mistake, but it just seems way too much downside risk for the potential payoff. And you can compare Vlad around four to Acuna, who I think a year ago at this time and relatively the same situation. I think he went something to more like round seven or eight. So this is a markup on Vlad that I just, on the one hand, I can't really stomach it. But on the other hand, if you got a Kuna in round seven last year, you made a massive profit. So my, my default mindset is that if you, if you make that pick and it pays off for you, I just tip my cap. But I, I it, it's not something you'll see me do. In in much the same vein, Ray, you're surprised Eloy Jimenez has not gone because, you know, they're by most accounts, 
he's probably got a cleaner path to playing time and he can really hit. Uh, you know, is he that much worse than Vladimir Guerrero that Guerrero would go forth and and, uh, and Eloy Jimenez is going to end up in the reserve rounds or round 20, you're in round 22 now? Yeah, uh, it, it's a great question. And I, I don't think the, um, it, I, the price difference doesn't seem terribly justified, does it? It's, you know, if, if Vlad's going to go in round four, then... You know, Eloy shouldn't still be on the board, right? Um, and I, I know Nick Senzel just – Eloy did go. I'm looking now. He went in round 11, which, you know, sounds about that, – that's something I that's more palatable to me. But then I was actually kicking myself this morning looking at the board because Nick Senzel just went in round 22. And compared to those other two, you know, that's a hitter with a, you know, broadly similar hit tool but not as much – hype because he was hurt last year and there's some question about where he's going to play in Cincinnati. But in round 22, who cares? That's something I feel like I probably should have been on a round or two ago. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting how the how these guys get valued differently, no doubt about it. Your uh, 22nd round pick is coming up sometime in the next, looks like, six or eight hours. So you got any ideas who you might grab? Uh, I think it's probably time for us to go back to those partial closers. You know, we rostered Leclerc. I mentioned we got Sir Anthony Dominguez as a, you know, sort of second option there. But we're going to need to accumulate at least a third and a fourth option in the last seven rounds, maybe even a fifth option. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see us, you know, spend a little bit of time this afternoon talking about which um, job share closer we're most interested in, in at this point. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, before I let you go, I always ask our experts in the preseason about players they think will be boons and banes for the coming year. Boons will be bargains in drafts and auctions. Banes are going to be those risky picks who are likely to disappoint. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners because they could be profit makers. Let's start in the American League with a boon hitter. Uh, you know, one guy we got sniped on in this draft uh, just yesterday. Uh, I mean, we didn't get sniped on. Maybe he went right after us. But, um, you know, one guy who I was eyeing for a while and didn't get was Kevin Pillar. Um, I kind of like the late power speed blend. He, uh, there might be a little more batting average upside there than – uh, we're used to, than we've seen from him in the past. And, you know, for a rant, he went in round 20 here. And for a, you know, 15 home or 15 steal guy who may not kill you in batting average, that's a pretty good return there. How about in the National League, a boon hitter? Um, often crowded outfield, but Kiki Hernandez always seems to find playing time in LA. And his profile has changed in the last couple of years. He's really not just a lefty killer anymore. The power seems real against pit, up against both side pitchers. And if the Dodgers are still working on their roster, you know, there may be more opportunities by opening day than there are now. So uh, Kiki's a good late, late stash for me. Over to the mound, uh, back to the American League. Who's a boon pitcher you like? I'm sure I'm not the only person who will say this to you this season, but I uh, really liked what Tyler Glasnow did at the end of the year after he got to Tampa. And he doesn't seem to have quite as much... Um, buzz around him as, say, Nick Pavetta does in the National League, um, who's sort of everyone's uh, go-to breakout young pitcher this year coming off of last year and the secondary skills he showed. Um, I would prefer Glasnow to Pavetta. To, to me, it's not close. And you know, but, but at the rate Pavetta's climbing up draft boards, I'm not sure that it's actually going to work out that way. 
And back to the Amer- uh, National League, rather, uh, Boone Pitcher. Um, I mentioned earlier that Brent talked me into taking Jonathan Gray, and even though I wanted Kenta Maeda there, you know, Gray is super interesting. Uh, you know, it, it, he's got great stuff, and Coors Field has held him back. But, you know, one of these years, I, I, I still feel like he's going to figure it out. And uh, we grabbed him in round 13 here, and there's uh, – you know, a ton of strikeouts, and at the very least, he's a matchup play, and he may very well end up being more than that. Ray Murphy's Boons, Kevin Pilar of Toronto, Kiki Hernandez of Los Angeles, Tyler Glasnow, my favorite of this uh, list, in Tampa, and Jonathan Gray in Colorado. Let's move over to the Baines now, Ray. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious because they could disappoint at the prices they figure to expect. Uh, who's a Bain American League hitter for you? Uh, I'm going to go with George Springer. I feel like he's a little overvalued. And it, it, he's, you know, as I think we wrote in the forecast, it's got a very high floor at this point. But, you know, I, I don't think I see the, you know, the, the trend lines don't support a breakout or another skill level there. And I'm not sure that um, what you can count on him for is worth the, you know, fourth roundish pick that he's going for now. I, I, he's a little, I, I still like him well enough, but he's a little down my draft board. He's a little overvalued for me. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a bane for you? Uh, yeah, uh, I'll go with Ender NCR Day. I had a Twitter interaction with uh, Ariel Cohen uh, yesterday. Uh, and NCR Day is more of a representation of, you know, how people are trying to squint at that sort of. You know, middle tier or later tier stolen base options and talking themselves into guys. And, you know, NCR, there's some buzz this week that NCR they look back to the leadoff role. And uh, that when he was leading off last year, he was running a lot more early in the season. But on the flip side of the coin, he's, you know, that's a pretty good lineup. They don't always want to be running with, you know, guys like Freeman and Acuna coming up. And, you know, he's 30 now and speeds the skill of the young. And I'm not sure that. Uh, you know, I, I can see the stolen bases continuing to dry up as well uh, as easily as bouncing back. So, uh, just another you know speed guy who gets a lot of scrutiny because he runs, but you know there are awards that come with him. Back to the mound. Who's an American League pitcher you think is a bane? So for me, in a you know, pretty well established tier of the top twelve or so pitchers at drafts this year, the one guy who I'm pretty consistently off is Luis Severino. Uh, you know, the, obviously a really talented pitcher. But, you know, there's just enough enigma there that, uh, you know, enough question marks about what was wrong with him later last year. And I, I think the market overall is, you know, kind of whistling past the graveyard a little bit there. And, you know, when we talk about minimizing risk among those pitchers, I would even much rather have the those 160-inning Strasburg-Paxton types than I would Severino, even if Severino's not innings restricted the way those other guys are. I, I just have too many questions about his performance to... <coughs> excuse me, to put him in that top 12-ish. And finally, back to the National League. Who's a Bane pitcher in the National League for you? Um, Arodas Vizcaino, just because, um, you know, one of the respected um, Braves posters on our forums, you know, continues to exist, insist over the long term that Vizcaino is sort of the placeholder closer option. The Braves would rather find something else. And I don't know if that means that Minter comes along, and supersedes him again this year if he's throwing well, or you know they're rumored to still be in on Kimbrel. Maybe that happens in the next few weeks, or once Kimbrel signs, if even if Kimbrel goes something else somewhere else, that you know one of the other you know respectable 
relievers who could close in a pinch. Your Boxberger, even Sergio Romo types end up in Atlanta. But I, I, I'm I, in that in that muddled closer marketplace. You know, Vizcaino is to me being considered a little safer than he should be, I and mean, the price is too high as a result. Ray Murphy's Baines for 2019, George Springer of Houston, Ender Inciardi of Atlanta, Luis Severino of the Yankees, and Aroldis Vizcaino also of Atlanta. Some worries down there in the Deep South. Uh, Ray, it's been a great pile of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Glad to have the show back, PD. Have a good run this year, and uh, I'm happy to jump on anytime you want. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com, and he's in charge of keeping the site running smoothly. He also writes regularly at the site and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio whenever we can get him. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Frequent Flyer, and Market Watch coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Now, whether you're going to be rooting for the Super Bowl teams or cheering for the commercials, make sure you log on to admeter.usatoday.com where you can watch and rate the Super Bowl ads before and during the big game. It's a battle to the top that everyone can be a fan of. admeter.usatoday.com And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, we're well past the two-hour mark. Starting to feel more like a telethon than a podcast, but thanks for hanging in with us, and of course we appreciate the donations. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week I want to talk about my New Year's fantasy resolutions. As we look February straight in the face, it might seem to be an odd time to still be discussing New Year's resolutions. By now, the parts of that new Bowflex gizmo that aren't covered in laundry are covered in cobwebs, and almost everyone has resumed smoking, drinking, overeating, gambling, and or arguing politics with Facebook trolls. All that said, it is a new year for Masternotes, and that's premise enough for me to discuss some of my fantasy baseball resolutions, even if as premises go, it's thinner than I ever will be, despite my resolution to eat more broccoli than anybody thought was possible. My first resolution was to play in a few more fantasy leagues, in different formats. If you've followed Masternotes over the years, you know that I've long believed in the principle of playing only one league. I chose this path several years ago, when a front office guy speaking at First Pitch Arizona noted that the real GM experience does not allow a fantasy player to have more than one team. So, since I left my home league several years ago, I narrowed my focus to a single Tout Wars team. I played the 15-team mixed auction redraft from 2012 to 15, and I've been playing the 12-team American-only auction, a redraft league, since 2016. I've enjoyed the focus that comes with playing just one team, but I've found that it affects my analytical work and commentary because it's hard to stay in touch with mixed leagues, draft leagues, keeper leagues, and so on. So I'm bumping up to three leagues this year, and I'm staying on the lookout for a fourth. First, I'm staying in the Tout Wars American League only. Weird as it sounds, I now think of this venerable experts league as my home league. I'm also adding a team in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. It's a mixed snake draft league, a redraft, with NFB-style overall competitions superimposed on the individual 15-team leagues in which the owners play. I wanted to get into a snake draft because the last time I had a first-round pick in a snake was when I picked A-Rod as a Texas Ranger. I wanted to get back to the mixed format as well. Speaking of mixed leagues, I'll also have a team in year one of the Mixed Auction HQ Wonk League. HQ Wonk is a somewhat tortured acronym for HQ Writers Only Keepers, and the key thing for me here was the keeper aspect. I haven't played keepers since my home league, 
and when I did my draft planning while feeling the burn of working out to Jane Fonda videos. HQ Wonk is not a straight keeper format as I remember it, in that owners can renew players indefinitely, with $5 yearly salary increases for auctioned players and $3 annual bumps for players drafted to the reserves. This feels a bit more like Dynasty to me than what I'm used to, the old S2, S1 option format. But HQ Wonk looks like it will place a long-term premium on using our large reserve list to build up a farm system of prospects. And that's another aspect of fantasy play that I think I've been missing out on. There should be active trading in the league and dumping. I've liked trading a lot, not so much dumping, but it's going to be interesting to see how everybody manages it. My next fantasy resolution was to take a few steps to improve the HQ Radio podcast. Now, a lot of this is just technical stuff. Mainly, I've replaced my trusty Samson C01U studio mic with an Audio-Technica broadcast quality headset, and I invested in a Zoom H5 multi-track digital recorder. The advantage of the headset is that it keeps my hands free and frees up more monitor space on my computer. Also, I can plug both the headset and the phone into the H5 recorder to capture my feature guest and my own audio at the same time. That means I won't have to spend as much time trimming and matching the two tracks, which were always slightly out of sync and took as much as 20 minutes per recorded hour to line up. Now, as I said, they'll be aligned automatically because they're being recorded at the same time on the same machine. I'm also mulling over some possible adjustments to the show itself, although I have to say I think it's pretty good. And in fact, the show was a finalist for the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Fantasy Sports Podcast of the Year Award. We finished behind another fantasy pod. Did you know that they have fantasy sports that are relating to the NFL? Who knew? My last fantasy resolution is to find some efficiencies in fantasy planning. To that end, I've started building an Excel workbook to import player info from various sources into a master database that I can use to deliver outputs for my various leagues. We talked about this earlier on the show. How do you manage the challenge of simultaneously looking at your fantasy planning on a global scale, but also for various leagues? The big challenge is that all the different source websites seem to use different player naming protocols and different ID numbers. So the player that Baseball HQ calls Delmonico, Nick, with no space after the comma, at other sites is variously called Nicky Delmonico, Nick Delmonico, Nicholas Delmonico, and Delmonico, Nicky, with a space after the comma. Even the spaces themselves can be different. Sometimes a space is just a regular space you get from the space bar. But other times, it's a skinnier HTML space, and it doesn't read in Excel as the same as the regular space, and that means Excel won't recognize them as the same player. This could all be easily worked out if every player had a unique and consistent numeric identifier, but every source seems to have a different number, too. All of this makes it hard to quickly assess a player across sites, and that's what I'm trying to manage with the Excel book. I'll let you know how it goes, and how the rest of my resolutions go, too. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we'll have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Before closing... This is my first chance to say a few public words about Lore Michaels since he died in December. 
I knew Lore for many years, and he was one of the most interesting people I've ever known. He had a difficult life, as many of you will have read, coping with Crohn's disease and enduring some untimely deaths in his family. But whatever melancholy he might deservedly have felt was lost in the dazzling light of his spirit, his intellect, and his passion for life. He played music, he loved music, he could talk about anything, and he was just a lot of plain good fun. He was a very special man, and boy, did he know baseball. I guess I'm just glad that Lore Michaels was my friend, and I'm going to miss him. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February the 1st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number one of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our Market Watch segment was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods, and if it's possible, leave us a nice review and a good rating. It does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another of We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.